Hello and welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. I'm Jeff. And today we're taking a little side road. I know we said we'd only do these for Patreon, but rules are meant to be broken. So today... Yeah. <laughs> we pro- you know, we probably wouldn't have done this if, if we hadn't taken a couple of weeks off. Mm-hmm. And, True. you know, what was the last time we did an off-track episode? It's been a long time. Was it maybe Marginal Man? Oh, Double Image? Was Double, double Image isn't on? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think it was. I don't think I was on that episode. No, you weren't. It was yeah. me and me and Ben, right? Ben, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Well, I'm I'm happy. This is a different one for me today. So I was psyched to uh, check out this band for a little bit this week. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Oh, no worries. If you've tuned in, you already know who it is. But of course, we'll say it just for posterity. It's Jeff Farina from Karate, and definitely Discord adjacent, DC adjacent. Yeah, so I was thinking about that, like Discord adjacent. I was thinking like the different circles of like Discord centricity. So it's like you know you have you have like Discord adjacent releases, which are like like the most obvious one would be like No More Censorship, right? Like Screams No mm-hmm. More Censorship. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a band that released all their shit on Discord, and that's like the one album that they didn't release on Discord. You know, and then maybe you have a band like uh, like Girls Against Boys or something where like. Everybody's in the Discord family. They just didn't release anything on Discord. So that's kind of Discord adjacent. You know, karate is a little more distantly. It's like Discord adjacent by blood. It's like a cousin. And by split seven inch, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and meaning literally, but oh, yeah, by blood for sure. By blood, because so- Jeff Farina is the older brother of Amy Farina. Mm hmm. Played in a bunch of Discord, right? The Warmers, the Evens, and Corky. Right. Um, and they also had a split seven inch with uh, Crown Hate Ruin, who is a Discord band. Oh, okay. That makes sense, too, because as he says in the interview, he played in a band with a couple of those guys in, D- in DC. He lived in DC for a couple minutes. But nobody in karate was ever on a Discord release. On an actual think. release. No. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. I was thinking like Amy Farina played in the warmers with Alec Mackay mm-hmm. and then, and then the evens and Corky with, with well, her husband, Mr. Ian Mackay. Right. And I was thinking uh, how many people can you think of who were in bands? I think I have all of them with both Ian and Alec. I but, could think of five, including Amy. Oh, that have been in bands with, with both men, with yeah. uh, both brothers. Meaning full bands, not just that. Have not like them. a guest, like an actual, yeah. like we were in a band together. Yeah. I could think of five people, including Amy. I could think, uh, man, you're putting me on the spot. There's, of course, Chris Bald. There's Amy. There's, oh, of course, Ivor. God, uh, that's three. Yeah. More? If you keep if you keep well, if you keep thinking along the same lines you're um, thinking, you should uh-huh. get at least one more. The fifth one is is maybe a step. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Mike Campton. Right. I don't know why was, I was thinking he wasn't in a band with yeah. Ian, but of course, yeah. Right, embrace. But there was yeah. one there is one more that's I think the trickiest one to come up with. Hmm. I'll give you a hint. We haven't gotten to the record yet. We haven't gotten to one of the bands yet. And it's something and it's a band that for both brothers has put out releases. Yes. 
man, you got me. Tell me what the fifth one is. Eddie Janney, the was, faith and skewball grand union. Oh, grand union. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> he came to mind too. And I'm like, I can't think of what he did with Ian. Yeah. That's why he's the trickiest one. I think yeah. to get, you know, cause he embraced one kind of fault. Like if you understand, I know everybody is just, then it's, <laughs> that's easy. But yeah, the Eddie Johnny one is, is the hang up. But, oh, that's, that's uh, anyway, good. anyway, yeah. yeah. So karate. Awesome. Yeah. So that's what we got today. It's interesting because what they did musically as well, it kind of isn't so, it's pretty unique actually, but in some, some aspects of it aren't so different from the direction discord went in, in the nineties. Yeah. Especially the earlier stuff. So we're going to, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about karate. We're going to listen to the interview with Jeff, but we said that we will discuss uh, the third album. Yeah. Uh, the bed is in the ocean. Yeah. Cause it seems like it's a, an album that still has some of the early vibe to it, but harkens into what they're, what they're going to turn into for the, for their later career, the, you know, more experimental jazz element of them. So it just yeah. it seemed like a good one and still got, uh, they all have great songs, but it's still got a little more aggressiveness and all that. So, and yeah. and to prepare for this episode, because the only thing I own by Karate is that split seven inch with Crown Hero. So I did prepare for this by listening to their discography up through this album. So I okay. haven't gone past it, but but I spoiler alert, I will because I really uh, enjoy the sort of the trajectory uh, yeah. the band is on. So it's good. So let's also say that this this um, this is going to have an excerpt of the full interview that you did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This so will how be... will people be able to listen to the full interview you did with Jeff? If they go to Patreon, that's another one of the perks. We're going to put about half the interview in, in this episode and there'll be a good another, I don't know, close to 45 minutes of interview. And it's all so fascinating. I, I love it. It was, it was so fun talking to him and we got really 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 nerdy about jazz and punk and kind of the philosophy behind a lot of music and and music theory all kinds of stuff so if you're a musician you'll love it and if you're just interested in the roots of music i think uh it's worth checking out but anyway patreon yes patreon so i want to give i want to give uh, you know anyone who's on the fence about Patreon. And obviously I appreciate all the Patreon subscribers we have. Uh, you can go to patreon.com and search for end on end extras club. I'm going to throw in a bonus. Uh, I'm going to make something available for our Patreon subscribers. So if you're a karate fan and you're not a Patreon subscriber, uh, this is, this is me trying to bait you in uh, to, to <laughs> subscribe at uh, yeah, a little subscribe <laughs> at a dollar, you know, whatever it is, a dollar a month or whatever it is. So in my memory banks, even though I have never been like a huge karate fan, not that I'm not, a, I'm a fan now, now that I've actually dug into the catalog, but you know, just not a band I really ever explored, mm -hmm. but my memory said I had seen this band that I had seen karate back in the day in Brownies in New York city sometime in the nineties. And I feel like maybe I saw them with Juno 44. Would that make sense to have seen them with like Juno 44? Yeah. Those I mean, bands overlap in time, right? Oh, definitely timeline. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was my, that was my memory. And my memory also said that I had taped that show because huh. it was during a time where I taped a lot of shows and I was, went through 
the sort of the part of my tape deck, my, my tape racks where I have all that stuff, my tape trading stuff, demos, practice tapes, stuff I, you know, taped. Humstinger. And I looked for it twice. Oh yeah, tons of Humstinger practice <laughs> tapes. And I couldn't, I couldn't find it. And I was like, maybe this is a false memory. Maybe I think that I saw them or think I taped, but I really didn't. And today, 30 minutes before we went on the air and hit that play button, I said, you know what? Let me get out the ladder. Let me go up there to the upper reaches of the tape racks and look. And sure enough, I found it. Oh, nice. I found it. So I, I started listening to it too. Uh-huh. And uh, it doesn't sound bad. Like for a tape that is 24 <laughs> years old, it actually sounds pretty fucking good. So this was recorded at Brownies in New York City, April 27th, 1997. So this was at some point, and uh, I've been listening to the songs. I've gotten through the first eight or nine songs, writing down what tracks they are. And it, it, there's nothing later than the second album. So I think mm-hmm. uh, Bed is in the Ocean came out in 98. So I think this has like basically stuff through the first two albums. So what I'm going to do is I am going to convert this show. Uh, I'm going to turn it into an MP3 or whatever. And like, well, we can Dropbox it and we will make this available to our uh patreon subscribers to download if they want it so there it is this is a live show 97 fairly early on in the band's uh career i I, i'm guessing this was this may have been one of the shows with them as a four-piece um yeah yeah you know which was a very short-lived that time period of the band and i guarantee you've never heard the show before because uh you know probably might have been the only one that actually taped it and it, it sounds pretty good there's a little bit of tape warble here and there but overall it's a very very listenable i was i was really happy i put it on the stereo real quick i was like oh this sounds pretty good so wow that's gonna be my little bait and switch to any uh yeah it's any uh well you're gonna have to subscribe (laughs) thanks for uh for adding that jeff i'm excited i will happy to do it i'm happy to do it i also want to say uh thank you we got another uh good review on Mm -hmm. itunes Mm -hmm. uh pretty short hello excellent podcast that's all that needed to be said. That was very nice. So thank <laughs> you. Uh, yeah. Now, this name is much more pronounceable than the last one. This is uh, Pokedick. <laughs> That's so good Pokedick. old Pokedick. No C in poke, just P-O-K. Mm. So actually, so it's more like Pock. Pokedick. So Pokedick, thank you very much for that for that kind review. Thank you, Pokedick. Yes. And before we, we've front-loaded this a bit, but before we get- Yeah. <laughs> Well, I do. I want to hear all about your, uh, you know, you're the one who had quite a time in between our last episodes and I want to hear all about it. Oh, well, you know, you've got some stuff to talk about too. I know. I don't, I really don't. Um, you played that show. Yeah, I did. Uh, both my bands played a show too many voices and two man advantage. We played at uh, the rail in Valley stream. Uh, that was, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago and it was a great time. It was, um, it felt old school. It felt like old times where it was just a packed, sweaty punk rock show. And, uh, you know, I told you, I, I, I visited with some family later that week and I went and made sure I got tested uh, mm-hmm. just to make sure because it was a little, you know, seemed like seemed like uh, somebody could have spread something in there. Right. <laughs> you know, it was certainly right. possible. But luckily, I was negative. I don't know anyone that, you know, tested positive after that show. So I think everyone was OK. But yeah, that was a great time. And I've just, you know, I've just been kind of relaxing these last two weeks, sort of um, 
you know, just focusing on working and uh, seeing some friends and things like that. And so I don't have anything really that new to report, but you, my friend, and a lot of my, my friends from home uh, descended upon Las Vegas, Nevada. Yes. And after a couple of postponements of uh, punk rock bowling, right, there was no punk rock bowling last year at all in 2020. Right. That's the first time. Uh, they've missed a year and probably who knows, 15, 16, 17 years, as long as that festival has been going on, but they finally, uh, they finally had it. So you were there. I was not there. Mm-hmm. And so I really uh, give me some highlights. Tell me about your, your yeah. time. Yeah. I, I try to uh, just keep it to the highlights. So being the old man, I am, I got into town the afternoon of the first day saw my son, hung out with him, had dinner, and just, I don't know, didn't want to deal with the headache of going downtown to Vegas, parking and dealing with all the uh, rigmarole of uh, Vegas on a Friday, trying to get settled into punk rock bowling. And honestly, the only band I really wanted to see that day was Descendants, who I am sad I missed, but you know, I've seen them so many times. They never disappoint, but I didn't go that day. So I only spent two days at punk rock bowling, but what a two days they were. It was fun. I'm always of a little bit of a mixed mind with, with festivals because there's the whole corporate element. And there was this time, this whole, you know, monster energy drink sponsoring all types of things and just advertised everywhere feels a little strange for, you know, the whole community rebellious spirit of punk rock, but you know, gotta make it happen somehow, I guess, uh, financially to put it on. So the first day I was there, Saturday, uh, one of the first bands I saw was one of my favorite. I was so happy to be able to see Field Day, which, you know, as we've talked about is Peter Kortnor and and uh, Doug Carrion and a couple other guys doing the uh, Dag Nasty catalog as well as some new songs. Well, the catalog minus anything from the actual album field. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind know, of odd, right? Isn't that kind of odd? It is odd. I wonder. I mean, I would. I don't know. I should ask them. I don't know if they've if they have performed anything from that. Well, is all ages show on field day? It's well, it was a single, and it was tacked on as a bonus track. Oh, okay, but it's not but, on the original. Right, right. Field day because they do do that, but. That is funny, but no, they sounded great. Peter was giving it his all like fucking singing and screaming his guts out the whole time. And people were stoked singing along as you would expect. And I I feel bad. I don't recall the guitarist name, but really uh, gets a a really thick, full sound and does as good as one can do uh, recreating those classic uh, Brian Baker riffs. So that, that was awesome. And, you know, it was nice. I got to, to catch up with those guys afterwards during the, you know, in the next couple of days, especially me and me and Peter had some really good conversations and, and uh, you know, kind of connected dots as far as where we've people we've known in uh, places we've been at the same time back in the day. So that was really cool. And that that's part of the fun of these festivals is, not just with the performers, but with people that you run into that you might not have seen for years or that you grew up with or this or that, or, you know, I met a handful of people that 
I've only met through the podcast and never met in person and that kind of thing's so cool. So that aspect is so fun. Uh, Chris Sherry, I got to hang out with quite a bit there, who was on uh, what our Fugazi episode, and he was kind of like the mayor of punk rock bowling. Every two feet he walked somewhere, someone wanted him to sign their arm or show him a tattoo they, they did of his art. This is so funny. So he knows everybody. But anyhow, field day were great. The Bronx, who I've always, you know, I've, I've actually kind of seen from a very big distance at some other festival and kind of put off his kind of meathead punk, but they were actually really good. I had to admit I was impressed. And their drummer, drummer Joey Castillo, plays in Circle Jerks, who I got to see from the stage and just, oh my God, watching him close up was super impressive to play at that intensity for the whole set. He was he was definitely a drummer's drummer for sure. He he's a monster. He is. He's a monster drummer. He played in Blast. Oh, he played in Blast. Uh, okay. Yeah, he played in Blast and he played in uh Blood Clot, that band okay. with uh you know yeah, like yeah. John Joseph and uh Gulliveri and uh and uh, Todd, Todd Youth. Todd, Todd, Youth, Todd yeah. Youth, yeah. And uh so we I saw him up close and he is yeah, yeah. actually uh, my buddy Aaron and I were talking about him and how like he's sort of become like the go to guy. Like mm-hmm. when a classic band needs a drummer. Yeah. Like we compared him to kind of like Josh Fries, how he for a while was yeah. like just seemed to be in like 20 different bands. Yo, and it's Joe true. Castillo seems to be like that guy right now. He is. He is. It's his time. It is. And and speaking of uh Fries, like he played on a band I was in album in the studio once because they didn't have a drummer at that moment. But uh he was the drummer in and Devo. And same thing. He was a monster just because they they didn't pause between any song so it's just non-stop you know and, and very you know heavy percussion bass so yeah that actually uh that was a good bookend starting the starting the weekend for me with field day and ending with devo who were the last band on the last day and put on it as one would expect an amazing show <laughs> and so visual as well as like you know mark mother spot yeah i was wondering how many how many of those guys are still how many of those Uh, original guys are still in the band i think two two yeah because they lost two yeah i know a couple of the guys have passed yeah but now they they put on a great show and had some new film incorporated with some of their old films that they that they show and uh yeah just the, the crowd were going crazy of course it was it was fun otherwise you know trying to think who else really impressed me i guess uh riverside gamblers had just full-on boat gamblers oh what did i say oh riverside, riverside gamblers <laughs> i love the riverboat yeah. gamblers yeah riverboat Huge gamblers fan. yeah 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 good just like reminded me of uh mc5 style full-on with more sing-along chorus type of punk rock it, they were just you know good sweaty sing-along stuff i liked it a lot they they have I think it's their third album uh, to the confusion of the of our enemies or something like that to the confusion of our enemies, that to me was like one of my favorite albums that came out mm-hmm. that year. Like I just listened to it over and over. There's some songs on there that are just so hooky that it's yeah. you just want to hear the song again as soon as it's over. That's what you know. They're a band that you know, especially when they were first coming out, that I heard their name a lot, and I've kept meaning to get to their catalog and still haven't. So I guess it's time. 
time has come and they it was it was fun with them too they they just were so excited to i mean every band was excited to be there and play but they they had so much energy and the uh they did one or two songs with this like had to be like eight-year-old girl that they brought up there and was singing along with them like for a couple songs and then they did a motorhead cover with the singer of the casualties singing singing with the main singer it was fun it was a good show oh that's cool yeah and otherwise other notables i'd say is just uh youth of today put on a amazing show so good uh, i thought uh walter was going to be there but since quicksand's kind of doing some stuff they had uh who's the other guy that oh craig they had, uh, yeah craig ahead, craig ahead. Craig yeah, yeah yep. exactly they were full on as you'd expect and what what really impressed me too about youth of today is just that you know ray was in between songs not just like every other band saying like you know yeah it's great to be back and you know motherfucking punk rock bowl and he was like you know had some messages to say you know talking about how it takes compassion to be a man and you know talking about community and about being clear-headed all this you know he he's still he's still got his message and his uh his enthusiasm intact all these years later no ray is the real deal he is he is the real deal absolutely so that that was awesome and you know all were cool but honestly you know they sounded great but you know i love scott when he fronts all and and this was uh chad right chad price the last price yeah Mm -hmm. i think he was in the last i think he was in the band the longest he might have been yeah yeah but I didn't recognize him from the photos because like he does, he sort of has this like, I don't know, kind of maybe like this uh, singer songwriter, acoustic alt country huh. career. And when I've seen him, he has like very long hair. He's got like a beard and he looked like he was just completely like shaven. And Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Like clean shaven. He looks, he looked like he would be in a 2000s emo band at this point. Yeah. That's not how, that's not his usual, uh, that's not how his has been his usual look recently, but I would have loved to have seen all. I love all. I love all too. So, you know, I was just, I just missed Scott so much. I think as a vocalist on them, they played some of those songs and I like, you know, as musicians, you, you can't even question their greatness. Anyway, they were good. I mean, and it's always, it's always just awesome to see uh, Bill Stevenson play anything. I had a, a moment's uh, run in with him where I was wearing my Steely Dan black flag shirt and he he just went on. We we went into this deep Steely Dan wormhole for a minute. So that was fun. So he wasn't he wasn't offended that uh, Steely Dan had co-opted. Well, who made did Steely Dan make those? Shirts? No, no, no. It's OK. Some... So those are like just bootlegs. Yeah, of. exactly. OK. Someone who got permission from neither Black Flag nor Steely Dan. <laughs> Most likely. Yeah. Most likely, for sure. And then if I... Steely Dan had made those shirts, like I like Steely Dan already, but they would yeah. have like they would have gotten oh, a yeah. couple of extra points. Yeah, for that. their cred would have <laughs> definitely gone up for that. But yeah, no, it was it was a fun weekend. Uh, community vibes were all abundant and good. And it was just a fun time. You know, like any big festival, there's drunk fucking boneheads and and girls but you know it was still it was a good time some good thank god some good vegan food trucks and the like as well so yep yeah hope to I see had, you I there next year yeah i had a good time and i had the same sort of 
split feeling like walking down Fremont Street. It just feels like the like the least punk rock thing <laughs> right in the world. <laughs> You yeah. know, especially I was when I was walking, they have like those free concerts on Fremont Street. I don't mm-hmm. know if any if anybody's oh, yeah. playing. They but, did, um, yeah. So when <laughs> I stopped and watched like a song of Candlebox when I was there a couple yeah. of years ago, and I was like, <laughs> this is just so strange. Wow. You know, it, it's yeah. so strange. I, I took a photo. I feel like it's one of the best photos I ever took. And it was um, Steve Ignorant was playing oh, yeah. on the main stage, like mm-hmm. a huge, you know, and it's like if anyone has been punk rock bowling, it's like. I feel like it's it's the size of several football fields. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and just humongous, humongous stage and um and humongous show area. It's like astroturfed out, and right then off to the side you have the food vendors, and then you know the other types One of smallest, vendors. Yeah. yeah, like people selling records or jewelry and things like yeah. that. And uh, so Steve Ignorant was playing. You know, it was all crass songs and stuff like that. He was playing. You know, he was mm-hmm. doing that tour, playing the songs of crass. And a shadow was like being cast on the field by like, like the Capital One Bank building or whatever, whatever huge bank building is like right behind that stage. And I was just thinking, this is incredibly bizarre. Like watching, <laughs> like watching this guy from Crass do Crass songs while this shadow is being cast upon this field by this, you know, yeah, ultra yeah. multinational, multi-billion dollar. Yeah. It's like, it just so it just you know represented the sort of dichotomy odd, yeah just such such an odd convergence of things in las vegas oh, uh, for sure. at that time but yeah it's odd but you know it's the type of thing where you know you you know i stood on a, on the starbucks coffee line with joey shithead and shared an elevator yeah. with blog dahlia like that's yeah. just the, the kind of stuff that happens you know oh oh yeah left and right that, that aspect is definitely surreal and cool no it surpassed my expectations. I had a I had a good time despite my old man grumpiness, and it it was great to see so many people of different generations and everybody just there for the for the music and for the community. So that was awesome. And you know, the night before I drove down, my partner Ayu and I we went and saw Todd Berry, this comedian. Oh, he's my favorite. Yeah, he's so good. This is the second he's time my I've favorite. seen him lately. Yeah. yeah, he's so funny. And you know, he he drowned in a punk band back in the day. Oh, did he? It doesn't yeah. yeah, that doesn't surprise me because he does talk about talks about drumming. He has that, yeah, and he has some that, skits. Yeah, and he has that. Uh, you can find it on YouTube just like a one or two minute little thing of him talk. Make he has this kind of Fugazi joke riff that's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I I know the Fugazi right. The Fugazi joke is. Uh, it's like, hey guys, uh, how about like... we, uh, how about we make door price six dollars so I don't have to have a roommate when I'm forty? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I love Todd Barry. I've I've seen him just walking down the street and I've like gone up to him and been oh, weird. you did, been weird like a couple of times that's happened. Like, no yeah, way. Like what in the Lower East Side, where just I've seen him like playing a show at the Continental. It's like one in the morning and I see him walking down St. Mark's Place and I just went, you're the funniest person alive. And he just kind of gave me this like, look like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could see. But that. he's, awesome. uh, oh, he's so funny. I, I love Todd Barry. Yeah, he's great. So good. It's been, what, a couple of weeks or so. So have, have you checked out any new music? Uh, I really, I really haven't. I've been, I've been catching up on the Mojack podcasts. So okay. I've been listening to some old SST stuff, which is cool. Uh, you really should, that. You should really get Always August on from your Skullfuck podcast. Those guys are so grateful that influenced. Okay. You were saying uh, that. I need to I need to yeah. dig into that. 
I've been listening to that Spitboy discography LP I got a bunch of times, so I've been digging that. And um, well, I watched the movie Casino while uh, last weekend, so <laughs> so in that respect, I kind of felt Virtually like I was in Vegas, yeah. in Vegas with you. I hope you you know weren't uh, digging any holes out in the desert, but. <laughs> There's a couple I wish I did dig. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nope. so that's great film. Cool. Love that. Yeah, that's classic. For me, I've got just a couple things. Oh, it's you like, know what? I do have one thing. Oh, I do have one thing. I forgot. Also, pod- usually you're the guy with the podcast, yep. but I'm mm-hmm. the guy with the podcast. And I only <laughs> thought of this because uh, you mentioned uh, Bill Stevenson, mm-hmm. and which, of course, leads me to Black Flag and the newest episode of The Vinyl Guide. Uh, has oh, Kira right. Rossler on it. That's right. And I listened to the first half of the interview yesterday as I was driving home. It was great. I mean, it was, you know, she she talks a lot about, uh, well, even the band that she was in before, Black Flag, uh, Twisted Roots with her oh, brother, right. uh, mm-hmm. Paul Rossler. And, you know, just kind of, you know, early life, how she gravitated to playing bass and joining Black Flag. I'm kind of right in the middle of hearing, you know, the Black Flag tour stories. And wow, what a crazy, crazy time for her because she was like going to school full time. Oh, that's right. Had a practice. But she also does talk about something. I feel like at some point we may have even talked about if we ever talked about that era of Black Flag and just how like her like her job was such a physically and like demanding job in a way because a lot of this, those tunes, especially the ones that are kind of jams where she's just playing this not uncomplicated types of bass lines, these kind of finger twisting bass lines, but she just keeps playing them over and over and over again for like six minutes straight while oh, everyone yeah. else is just going nuts and jamming on top of her, yep. like her, her bass line. And she's like the one consistent thing. And uh, she talks about that, like that thing that holding down the fort in those songs and, you know, not an easy thing to do at all. So I've always loved, you know, her bass playing and her era of Black Flag. And you don't really get too many interviews with her, I feel. So uh, that's something to check out. Our unfaithful co-host, Ben, did one with her for 185 miles south a few months ago, I know. Well, you know what? That's cool. I, I haven't listened to that. So um, that's cool that she is doing some interviews then, because I know mm-hmm. she is going to be uh, releasing a solo record. Oh, interesting. So she might be getting out there a little bit, maybe okay. to promote that a bit. Oh, cool. I got to. All right, Ben. I'm sorry. Yeah. I will. I will go back and listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I got to listen to that vinyl guide one too. I do like that guy's show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll go quick through the couple things I've got. So, you know, I saw a documentary. I paid the money to to rent it online. I mean, why not support the the people that made it? Called dope hookers and pavement and it's not the kind of documentary you think with that title no i mean those are three of my favorite things (laughs) yeah exactly so of course i had to watch this no it was about uh the detroit hardcore scene in the uh early 80s early mid 80s uh it's specifically kind of focusing around that club the freezer that famous place where everybody would play and they did a good job they they really focused in without getting too diffuse. They maintained their focus mostly on like negative approach, necros, the meat men are pretty big in there. And then they mentioned some bands like the fix and bored youth a bit. And somehow for not being a DC documentary, Ian was like in this thing is as much, if not more than some of the band members, which was kind of funny, but, uh, 
it was really good. You know, I, I always had a fascination with that era of Detroit music, you know, that conquest for death and those first two negative approach records are just so pivotal to me growing up. And in the early mid eighties, you couldn't get away from uh, the meat and whether you liked them or not either. You know, I even thought they were a little adolescent as an adolescent myself, but you know, it, it's, it's fun hearing Tesco V talk about those days as well. There's some great footage it's like all these punk rock documentaries. There's like three, four or five more talking heads than you think are necessary, or at least character talking heads. But you know, that's the nature of this beast. And it, it, it was really cool to just hear about the early days of negative approach, especially for me, but also how uh, pivotal the necros were to pretty much creating that whole entire scene really of course they go into touch and go and that sort of thing fanzine into the record label yeah i like those bands i was trying to find because i do have a bored youth record oh do you uh, the yeah there was like a repress of like their oh. own stuff it sounds terrible but it's it's <laughs> cool to have it's a good package yeah, yeah. and kind of one of the lesser one of the lesser talked about well yeah i mean well how about uh with the, the fix with the, the fix, fix from yeah. detroit what about documentary? Yeah, they were. Uh, they like were. I said, okay. they were in. The, they don't feature a lot, but they do talk to one of the guys a couple times, and you know, it it's pretty interesting. They were on that uh, comp that what was that famous seven inch? Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is that the master? The master tapes? No, that's no, that's, no, no. that's Chicago. That's yeah, Chicago. It's a, yeah, process of elimination. Oh, that's that's it. Process of elimination. Yes. Okay. And keeping with the Detroit uh, vibe, a record I got recently in the mail from Third Man is the Static Toothpaste and Pills LP. Do you know who the Static are? Um, Maybe. I don't know. It's basically uh, John Brannan's high school band. And man, there's aspects of it where you can tell, but generally... you would not know it's a high school band. They're so good. The The recording goes from pretty much lo-fi to no-fi, but uh, it's a mix of live and demo tape stuff. And it's just really cool. It's basically a, a Stooges, Alice Cooper, maybe even a little bit of Saints style band. So, you know, I'd heard talk about them before, before I got the record of being kind of gla- more glammy than than uh, hardcore and it's definitely not hardcore but it's it's more you know i i don't think it's it's got a tiny bit of glam it's more just like early punk sounding and what's amazing is that john brannan sounds like john brannan even in this very first band of his is <laughs> he sings a little bit more actually but when he screams it's full-on john brannan madness so it, it's cool it's 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 almost like with easy action the last band that he did like he came full circle back to that kind of early mc5 uh alice cooper stooges vibe that he started with with the static so this stuff's really cool it's stuff that i guess people like thurston moore and uh brian coley and all the old heads kept pestering him to put out for years and years and it's cool to have the have the release of it it's got a lot of photos and 
writing and stuff in there as well. So it's a really good package. It's worth checking out if you're a fan of John Brennan at all. Yeah. And that sounds like a neat little historical document. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the songs are really, really good. This is like, you know, his band he was in in 78 to 1980. There's like a song called Punk Nation from 1978. And I love like the title, If We Had Brains, We'd Be Dangerous. <laughs> you know, uh, Ugly Teenagers, another song. It, it, it's good stuff. But anyhow, that's that. And the last thing that I definitely have to mention because this is right up the alley of the podcast, is an Australian band who I wasn't aware of, but they got a hold of me, and I checked out their stuff on Bandcamp. But apparently it's a, a, a physical record, too. They're from Melbourne, a band called Latest God, and they have a six-song, seven-inch that is really, really, really good. It's kind of up the alley of uh, Too Many Voices. I don't know if you've heard of them, but... Uh, it must be amazing. <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it definitely brings to mind a little of the Rev Summer vibe, but more very much in line with Dag Nasty uh, and Swizz. And of course, it'd be like, it reminds me of Can I Say if, if they recorded it with Sean Brown, but with the production of the LP. It's got Sean's type of singing with, with you know, the more qual- more high quality production and there's a lot of bands out there that do this kind of style now, but what a, this has what a lot of bands don't in my mind, which is that sense of urgency and, and anger that, that still is vital to the music. It, you know, a lot of bands get lost in just leaning too heavy on the melody side and it lose and it gets too professional sounding, but these guys, you know, kind of walk that fine line really well. Cause you know, it's a thin line. It's a thin line. What? So tell me Between the name of the band again. <laughs> so they're called Latest God, and it's a self-titled uh, seven-inch, which I'm not going to try to order because it's too expensive to get anything overseas. But it is on Bandcamp, and six songs, really great production, really cool singing, and I believe two guitars. I, I didn't see a listing for the members, but it sounds like there's some good two guitar part stuff going on in there. All right. Latest God. Yeah. It, it's, I, they have it right. Latest God. That's it. Yeah. It, okay. It's it's good. And they keep it. They keep each song like just to the central core of what each song needs. I, I think it's super successful. And that's it for me. The only only other thing that I'll just mention, because I just saw it pop up today. I'm sure it's popping up everywhere on the Internet at this moment. But, you know, Discord is the latest reissue they put out just came out today which is the nation of the ulysses 13 point plan just got reissued on vinyl once again okay jump on that yeah if you're so inclined to jump on that (laughs) if you want to be have the vinyl incarnation for the episode coming up in a couple short months Mm -hmm. so i should jump on that i don't think that i actually uh i don't think i have that album Mm, there you go I think I, think I have the right. other one. I have placed pretty for baby on tape. That's what I got. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I've got that on tape as well, but yeah, I think it's white vinyl for the new one mm-hmm. or for the new reissue. Interesting. Yeah. Anyhow, but yeah, that's, that's all I got. So let's get into karate. Okay. So let's, let's get into uh, a little quick history of uh, karate. 
Yeah. So Karate formed in Boston, 1993. The members, uh, bassist turned guitarist and vocalist, probably main songwriter too, uh, Jeff Farina, mm-hmm. bassist Iman Vitt, and drummer Gavin McCarthy, who had played in uh, that Boston band, The Swirlies. Uh, they had met at the Berkeley School of Music. You know who else I think met at the Berkeley School of Music was uh, Dream Theater. When did the guys in Dream Theater <laughs> meet at the Berkeley School of Music? I, I would not be surprised that or the Guitar Institute of Technology or something. Yeah, oh maybe. No, I feel like they were Berkeley guys. Okay. Any anyway, you know. So, but in that's, addition, that's the beginning of the parallels. Yeah. So in karate and dream theater, I mean, the, the bottom line is that these guys were serious. I mean, the, these guys were serious, serious musicians. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, these weren't like just like punk guys who, you know, kind of got better with age. Like these these were very well educated, uh, well rehearsed musicians. So, you know, in addition to a love for bands like uh, the Minutemen and Beefeater and Rights of Spring, like these guys all had a jazz background. Um, the band and chops too. Yeah. Oh my, I mean, chops for miles, chops for miles. Yeah. Uh, the band released a demo called sometimes you're a radio in 1993 before releasing their first single death kit on a small New York based label called the self starter foundation. The first self-titled LP would appear in 1995 on Southern records. We've talked about before. That's the UK Mm -hmm. label founded by John Loader back in 1977. And that established a band label relationship that would exist for the entire length of the band's career. In 1996, Iman Vitt would move over to second guitar, making way for uh, Jeff with a G, uh, his roommate, Jeff with a J, Jeff Goddard. Uh, to join on bass and Goddard, like the others, had a formal musical background. He studied jazz at Berkeley. He also went to the New England Conservatory of Music, and he also had a legit punk background. Uh, he played in a Boston hardcore band called Apology, who released an album called Pass You By on Wishing Well in 1988. And do you know who sang for that band, Apology? No, but I remember that band's name. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be Mike Gitter. But don't tell don't tell Mike Gitter that because Mike (laughs) Gitter denies that this record or band even exists. He he, he denies it exists. Uh, This never happened. This record never happened. You could say, oh, no, Mike, look, here's the record. Here's here's the record. No, no, I'm not seeing what you're. No, Mike, I'm going to put the record on. You hear the record playing right now. You hear that music. He's like, no, I don't. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, Mike, according to Mike Gitter, uh, this band and record do not exist. So I don't know. You know, it's it's uh, Schrodinger's Schrodinger's band. Uh, maybe it yeah. exists. Maybe it does not exist. Anyway, he also played bass in Jones Very with our former guest and friend, Vic Bondi, and also did some time in the Moving Targets. Wow. And at the time That's he joined pedigree. the band. Oh, my God. What a pedigree. At the time he joined the band, uh, he was playing in the Loon, uh, who did a split seven-inch with Karate. And this four-piece lineup was short-lived, releasing only one album um, in place of Real Insight in 1997. At this point, uh, Vitt left the band to go to medical school, and he does presently have a medical practice uh, here in New York City. He's a primary care physician and also specializes in gay men's health. So we are left with uh, the trio of Jeff Arena, uh, Jeff Goddard, and Gavin McCarthy. And that would be the band's lineup for the rest of the band's history. 
they would release four more records. Uh, the record we're talking about today, 1998's The Bed is in the Ocean. Then there would be 2000's Unsolved, 2002's Some Boots, and 2004's Pockets. And that last album, Pockets, is where I think a musical relationship was established with uh, guitarist Chris Brokaw, who had played drums in Codeine um, and then had reverted back to guitar for the band Come. Brokaw guested on a few tracks on Pockets, and I think he played with the band on that 2004 tour. And Brokaw would collaborate musically with both uh, Jeff Farina and Jeff Goddard post-karate. Uh, Jeff uh, Farina and Chris Brokaw have released a few albums uh, yeah. together. Um, one actually, I think, came out fairly recently in the last three or four years. Uh, Karate's final studio release was recorded prior to Pockets, and they recorded some tracks for the Dutch label Concurrent, who we've also talked about before, as part of their In the Fish Tank series. And that series, Concurrent, would take touring bands, put them in the studio for a couple of days, and basically let them do whatever they wanted. Uh, they did about 15 of those records. I know like No Means No did one, Sonic Youth did one, uh, a lot of bands you would you would recognize if you saw the list. Uh, Karate was the 12th record of that series and they chose to do covers and they did, they did uh, covers by the band, uh, that great song, Tears of Rage. I think they did a Billie Holiday song on there. Um, more interesting to me, they did a whole bunch of Minutemen songs. And as far as I know, the only Beefeater cover that I've, I'm aware of, I don't know if you know any bands that have ever covered Beefeater songs, but they did a, a cover of Need a Job. Mm-hmm. Uh, the band played their 694th and final show on July 10th, 2005 in Rome, uh, disbanding when Farina began to develop some hearing problems. And in 2007, their 595th show was released as a live album called 595. Mm -hmm. And that was a show recorded in Belgium on May 5th, 2003. And all of the band members have been musically active since Karate's breakup. Even Dr. Iman Vitt released a couple of <laughs> uh, solo albums in the 2000s. But, you know, Jeff Farina, our guest today, I mean, wow. I mean, just so musically restless. I mean, doing things, uh, you know, long before Karate even had broken up, he had a uh, like kind of this lo-fi duo uh, project uh, with his with his friend uh, Jody Bonanno, who actually gets a production credit on the record we're talking about today, uh, called The Secret Stars. Oh, uh, yeah, they're great. He started releasing solo albums as early as 98, which is the same year uh, The Bed is in the Ocean was released. And, you know, after after the, the band broke up, he, he did a band called uh, Lawnmower, which I think is sort of like kind of an avant-garde jazz thing. Glory Tellers and a band called Exit Verse with uh, John Dugan, who was in, um, I think it was in Chisel and Indian Summer and Pitch Blend and a bunch of a bunch of DC bands like that too, as well as a slew of solo records and collaborations. So, you know, and now, you know, the thing is, is that all of these records are now being uh, reissued by Numero Group. And I, I guess there was a, a bit of a, a battle because John Loader from Southern Studios passed away a few years back. And I think that the guys in karate were really kind of fighting uh, to get the rights to all their records back because all of their records, all of their studio records were released on Southern. And there was a bit of a battle, but I guess they finally got the rights to their records back. And now Numero Group 
uh, this year. I'm not sure if they're out yet, yet or not. Yeah, I got but the this first is... two in the mail. Okay, just, so well timed, yeah. well timed that we're doing this, um, and that they are reissuing all of the karate records, which is very cool. And you know, it begs the question. <laughs> I'm sure Numero Group would love to uh, have karate play a few shows again. I don't think that they've ever done any. They've you know, let's get back together really. and. Yeah, since 2005, it's been 16 years. You have a fresh slate of, of uh, reissues that I'm sure Numero Group is going to do an incredible job because they, they do such a good job with their with their reissues. I would love to see it. Now that I'm like kind of like digging this band, right. man, I would, I would love to see a karate show. I know. Me too. Does, does Jeff talk about this issue? He doesn't. I mean, he talks a lot. We get into talking about the reissues, you know, in what order they might come or what what extras might happen with them. But uh, yeah, there's no talk of reunion. You know, he talks about, it, it sounds like you said, he he has not stopped and has no plans to stop playing music. But, you know, it's even for someone uh, with his background, it sounds, you know, it's as we get into our 40s and 50s, it's, it's much harder to keep a band together, period even of uh, people that have been lifelong musicians just because of people's lives, people's schedules, mm-hmm. people's priorities change. Yeah. And I think Jeff Goddard actually lives over in Belgium now. Oh, wow. Too. So, and I know uh, Jeff Farina is now based out of Chicago. Yeah. And uh, at least I saw his website in pre COVID times. I mean, just plays tons and tons of solo shows mm-hmm. in the Chicago area. I mean, basically staying in Chicago um, at least for the last year or so. Yeah. So, well, I would love to see it. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. but he might be, you know, and I would understand this because uh, someone as creatively restless as him, where he has his, he has done so many different things, you know, he just might not be the type of guy to kind of look backwards like that or try That's to, you know, true. you know, try to recreate something he did half a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, half of from the interviews I've read that have come out this year, like print interviews, sounds like he's kinder to himself than he had been in the past but he's you know like like many musicians when you listen back to your old stuff you hear some surprises that are like wow i would have never thought of that now and then some stuff that you're like god there's no way i would want anyone to hear me thinking of that now <laughs> you know yeah so so um okay so what is uh what, what is your history with this band well i gotta be honest it's not so different from yours i from the sound of it, I was just slightly more of a fan. I'd seen them a couple of times. And the second time I saw them really sticks out in my memory, which was in the late 90s in San Francisco, and just how uh, they resisted the urge to rock out at every turn and just would go on these extended, really interesting improv uh, flights. You know, that fascinated me. And they were you know, another one of those bands that I kept meaning to go back to. I was pretty familiar with the first album and the actually the demo tape, but I would check in with them here and there, just, you know, hearing them on uh, Friends records or, you know, a song here or there. But I, I never really dove deep into them until I think reading a couple of these interviews uh, ahead of the reissues a few months ago which really piqued my interest and went back and revisited a lot of this music and really spoke to me. So, you know, I, I 
made it a priority to try to talk to Jeff. That's my history. It's it's. I, I wish I could say I was on board from day one and saw him yeah. 50 <laughs> times, but no. <laughs> it's never too late to discover stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's just a, uh, there's obviously a world of new bands always putting out records, but there's this world of bands in the background who were just kind of names, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, behind that name, though, is this might be this, you know, huge world of music that's just waiting to be discovered. And if you're listening to it now, well, it's, it's new, you know, it's new to you. Right. Same thing. I mean, for me, I, there's no doubt that the, the only that the first time I heard karate was because I, I did like the crown hate ruin and they had a split seven with them. And I'm sure I bought it because of crown hate ruin and karate was just the band on the other side. And uh, then I did see them, whether it was with Juno 44 or someone else, I guarantee I did not go to that show because mm-hmm. I was going karate. to see karate, but uh, you know, I did see them, I did tape them. And now that I'm, you know, I've listened to those first three albums and I was listening to the live show. I'm like, Oh yeah, I know all those songs, hmm. you know, they've, they're all, they've all become ingrained in me. Right. So me too. So this was kind of a new journey for me. Uh, now, did you kind of like how many of their records were you able to sort of get under your belt? up till now preparing for this well like yourself the first three very very deeply you know the first three i'm you know feel confident talking about overall and then all the later stuff i kind of listened to once or twice just to kind of see where they were going afterwards and i loved it all but i knew there was no way i was gonna have it solid in my head in time right. for the episode enough to to talk about it intelligently you know i i can't wait to uh you know move through the catalog on my own but you know like i said i i would be remiss and and, and it wouldn't be fair to the band for me to speak about the later stuff too much yeah so why don't we just say a sentence or two then about the two albums leading up to uh the bed is in the ocean so so the first album to me um, it's good. You know, it's, it's of its time. It's kind of like those first so. albums. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like those first albums by great bands that show that you're a really good band. You're, you're a very competent band, but you haven't necessarily brought anything new to the table yet. Yeah, they haven't so the only comparisons sound. I, right. The only comparisons I made were like metal comparisons, which is terrible, <laughs> but I was, but my metal comparisons would be like, like the first Slayer or Anthrax records or something oh, like uh-huh, that, uh-huh. where those records are clearly very good bands, but they're kind of playing slightly more traditional metal. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what made those bands unique and special happened kind of on record number two for those bands. Right, right. So that's kind of how I feel about this record. It's, it's very of its time. It's, you know, codeine slint, uh, you know, this some Fugazi, I definitely there hear is. some Fugazi definitely, influence definitely. in there. They had not yet sort of incorporated out into, into being confident enough to expand the, the playing field a little bit. They kind of were playing in the within the lines. And it was like this scene. secret. It was like the secret that we now know about them. I know. Because yeah. at the time that we know that they have these incredible like jazz backgrounds and had access to this huge language of music that they held back, that they did not present to anybody on this record. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I, I mentioned to him in the interview, you know, it just, it always strikes me thinking about that. It's crazy. They probably any band that they ever played shows with, especially at that point, they could probably play circles around 
they played with bands that have been around for 10 years, they could probably still play circle, you know? Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So, and, and his vocals on that record too, you know, he's got his, you know, Jeffrey has this very interesting voice. Yeah, you know, it's sort of this specific cadence to him. Yeah. It's like this very earthy tenor. There's almost a little bit of crooner in him. Mm. But on that first album, you know, he hasn't fully embraced his own yeah. voice. I feel like there's a little bit of he's yeah, a little timid with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that shows I don't know if it's a record. I like the record. I'm not sure if it's a record that I would return to a whole lot. Yeah. Especially in light of what comes actually immediately after this record. I agree. I agree. And even the lyrics are okay, but they're not as strong as, you know, they're more, more miss than hit for me mm-hmm. in that they're not bad, but they're the most kind of just barely out of being a teenager type of lyrics sounding of any of any of the records so far. I didn't really look at the words to these first two mm-hmm. albums, to be honest, but just mm-hmm. how he uses words on the first album you know, like he uses like uh, like on that very first song where he goes, you know, sugar, like he uses that word uh-huh. just sort of like kind of like as a, as a bit of an at- attack or an accent without even knowing like the uh, the context that he's using the word. And he kind of does that a lot on that first record. Mm-hmm. Um, so what about the uh, the second record? Second record is where things start getting interesting to me. I like the two guitars and part of me loves that they stayed a trio after this record but also part of me wonders what it would have been like if they continued with two guitars for the rest of their incarnation like what the two guitars would be doing playing you know especially as they got more and more kind of free with with certain parts and free is not really the right word but free with the uh improvising yeah, I, I would have really liked to have heard. I don't know what my favorite karate album is because uh, right. there's a whole half of their catalog that I have not <laughs> yet listened to. But of these three records, I mean, it's a tough call, actually, between right. this record and, and Bed is in the Ocean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is the only album they made as a four piece with two guitars, yet they still don't feel the need to fill in every space. Right. Yeah, with a true. note or a sound. I mean, I think that, you know, on, on a surface, karate could be perceived as being, you know, kind of a very minimalist kind of right. sparse band. But I think that's a little unfair and a little bit too surface level listening, because I think that they're incredibly uh, rich and deep in other kind of ways. Well, yeah, there's so much. Each song has like so many different parts, so many different movements, so many different textures and dynamics. So there's no way it's minimal other than that they really utilize space like you said yeah but but they continue that on this record even though there's an extra musician on it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it still has that very open spacious flavor but yeah the songs definitely feel like they're wound a little tighter yeah Uh, they definitely are a little bit heavy at least as you know heavy is relative when it comes (laughs) to karate i mean karate are not a heavy band uh, but there are definitely uh, moments get more rocking a little bit more on this at times. For sure. I, you know what I hear some influence of just in some of the guitar parts on this on this record huh. is Iron Maiden. Wow. I hear some Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. Not they're not heavy. There's no, you know, galloping rhythms in this song. I'm not talking about that. But if you listen to like uh, the song New Martini, 
Uh uh Um, like just after the two minute mark, go, go, go back and listen to that and listen to this. You know, it's a very, um, very warm tone guitar, but it's kind of like when Iron Maiden kind of does those long ballads (laughs) and they kind of have those like mellow, slow sections. And I don't know if it's Dave Murray or Adrian Smith playing those parts. I think it's Dave Murray, but, uh, you know, where it's, it's like almost almost like like a slight jazz slight eastern flavor to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i hear that on new martini and a couple of songs on this record where it's like wow this kind of sounds like like one of those like like those long instrumental iron maiden introductions that can kind of get annoying real quick <laughs> you know and they they do too much of but it's still kind of cool and 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 shifting gears and you know you're yeah. you're beginning to maybe get the first hint Mm-hmm. of some of the jazz influence in here but yeah. it's not it's not quite fully tangible just yet definitely i mean there like you said it's it's hints it's little teasers of what's to come but not you know they don't go full throttle into the jazz areas on here at all mm-hmm. it's more just a couple phrasings here and there yeah i also and, like some of the song titles on this uh eh, on it's this very record, like. you know i was trying to place what what the kind of vibe and uh you know language reminds me of and i think i i think it reminds me of especially like the titles and stuff it reminds me of that whole scene that came up around and after jawbreaker that kind of young chain smoking romantic uh loser type of vibe like that's what i think of when i see a lot of the song titles and some of the lyrics some of the lines in the songs yeah, well, some of the song titles is also just like, like I feel like they're working, they're working titles, right? Like you have, um, you know, die, die. this this plus slow song. Well, yeah. Know? Oh, like that. that. Sure. And then, yeah. and then my favorite one is just new, new. So like, <laughs> yeah, like you know, like they had a new song, but then they wrote a song after that, and so right. that was like it's the, the new, new, new song. <laughs> and, and and there's a song title on the uh, the first. There's a song on the first karate album that doesn't have the title at all. Mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. uh which is actually a really good song it's just uh like whatever on spotify it's just three dashes right so <laughs> i like true. uh that's I like true that. and and on this one that there's the new new and then the next song after is the new hangout condition yeah so anyway yeah i i dig the first two records uh i think in place of real insight is is much stronger i do too it's, uh, than it's the first record i would luckily since i bought these <laughs> through the the reissues like i definitely will be putting in place a real insight on my turntable much more than the self-title but you know it's worth mentioning the graphics too the graphics are very minimal as well but pretty well done i think like throughout their career but even this early like even that first album cover is incredible like the first time you see it it just it's instantly stuck in your head you know, I like their sense of using negative space with their album covers. Yeah, it kind of goes along with their music. Well, I will say as far as album covers go, uh, I definitely like the first two albums. If I'm going to say one thing about the album we're talking about today, it would be my least favorite album cover of the three <laughs> album covers. So, um, <laughs> I don't I, I can't say I particularly love uh, yeah, the it's... in the Ocean album cover, but I, I do like the other ones. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like yeah, it's it's weird. It's like a uh, video game pastiche kind of thing. Yeah, with a Lego. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Well, you ready to uh, 
to jump into that one? Let's, yeah, let's talk about let's, let's talk about the bed is in the ocean for a little bit. Yeah, let's drop the needle and dive in the ocean.
Okay, so uh, this is Karate's The Bed is in the Ocean. This is the third record, 1988, uh, Southern Records release. Um, yeah, so why don't you uh, get us started? This is so, well, maybe I'll get us started by just saying that this is sort of, this is kind of, in a sense, the first album uh, by the third lineup change, you know, the third lineup of the band and the one that would stay with the Final. band. Yeah. The final lineup who would, who would actually stay together for several releases. So it's kind of almost like, like its own debut in a sense. Hmm. Um, so I think in that regard, this was actually an excellent album uh, to pick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without taking credit for thinking of it in, in that term, it, it definitely just, it feels like the beginning of a trajectory Whereas the first two are finding the footing to get to here before it starts this journey. Yeah. One thing for me that I guess we could, I could have said in the previous section is the band name. To me, it's either the best or the worst band name ever. Cause it's kind of, yeah. Cheap. I don't know the origins of the band name. Uh, I don't know if you asked Jeff about that. I did not. I didn't think, I don't know why I didn't think of it, but. Well, I think, Karate for me, you know, it I mean obviously karate is a martial art. Mm-hmm. So it is it is something which can be violent. Obviously, we love martial arts films, right? And we love it for the violence, yet at the same time, is also something that can be, you know, incredibly beautiful, graceful, and fluid at the same yeah, time. It it it's got flow and dance elements to it. Right. It's it's not like, uh, you know, as opposed to like boxing or something like that, which is much more brutal, you know, much more brute force kind of, um, you know, karate. Like, so it implies something that can be both, you know, uh, I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, be in the way of a of a flying kick, you know, but uh, watching it could also be something that's uh, beautiful. Hmm. Well, and I mean, the only way that it that makes me kind of appreciate it too is I think what you're kind of circling in on in that it's the music that they play, especially as they get to this album and onward is they almost do a kind of musical uh, martial arts at times, you know, with all the different tricky changes and, and uh, shifting tempos, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I'll say that, you know, whereas some of the songs on the first two albums most halfway musical bands could make decent attempts at covering. Like once you get to this album and onward, like good luck covering it, you know, karate songs and in any kind of straightforward way anyway, because the musicianship on here is just off the charts by this point, right from the very first notes, the first song evident. And I think it's interesting that they open this record with a very mellow song. Like there's some kind of rock and song parts and songs, mid tempo at least on here, but they start with a very mellow track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is the album where uh, Clark Kent takes off his suit and becomes Superman. <laughs> and Superman was there the entire time. You just mm-hmm. didn't know it was there. And this is where I think before when you use the word, you know, freedom or freedom to explore. Yeah, I think this is the album where the band said, fuck it, you know, like this is we can do this like uh, we play jazz. We are, you know, uh, trained musicians and and we have, you know, all of these tools in our toolbox 
that we have been holding back using. And what the hell? Let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's let's mm-hmm. blend the language of like, you know, indie rock or slowcore or post-hardcore, whatever you want to call it, with the language of, you know, jazz, even some Latin flavors somewhere. And in doing so, I think that is really what for me has created something truly unique and and you know hard to make too many comparisons with things like this. I mean, oh. that first song that you're talking about, you know, these are there are ghosts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are just these, you know, these um, very clean guitar tones, these just jazzy interludes, these jazz inflected arpeggios. I mean, he's using passing tones. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not something that you would just happen upon. I feel <laughs> yeah. by accident. And if you did, you, especially if you were a punk kid, you would wonder what the hell is going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love there. There's a couple moments on this record, starting with the first song, like on the bridge of the first song, that one part, you know, that remind me of, I'm going to go there and say, there's some Steely Dan riffs <laughs> in here. And maybe it's just, I mean, some that actually remind me of specific ones, but in general, just maybe because they're one of the only bands in the rock catalog that is so jazz inflected, uses jazz vocabulary. There's not many bands in rock and punk that, you know, is so deeply influenced by and knows jazz so intimately as someone like Steely Dan, so... I also I also get a Beatles esque vibe. There's from a some couple of those moments, interludes, you know, like kind of like on some of the early Beatles records, hmm. on the where they one. would on some of the early Beatles records where they would sort of they would sort of have these uh, these almost sort of jazzy inflected, you know, scales or guitar runs that they would do. Mm-hmm. Um, except except I think karate is much more proficient at this stage of their career than the Beatles were at that right. stage of the career that they were doing it could also just be like these very just wholesome wholesome tones that they're getting out of really all the instruments no it's true they get you know? that's one thing that's really clear is they really hone in on on tone with their instruments on this record absolutely and the guitar really sounds to me like he's using like like it doesn't sound like he's using a stack or anything it sounds like he's using like a tube combo amp or something like that he i don't is, know what he's yeah. using but that's kind of what it sounds like to me I'm pretty sure that is the case. I know later on that's the case, but I'm pretty sure even then. And you you brought up the Beatles. You know, like kind of when the Beatles like cover some of those like schmaltzy 50 songs. No, I know what you're saying. Right, like 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 uh what was that song on like the first or second album like Till There Was You or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that kind of song, like like something that they might do on a song like that during initial rental break was kind oh, of yeah. reminiscent of some stuff that's going on in here. Well, sure, but even like on the second song on on the same stars, the chorus reminds me, in a way, of the kind of picking that happens on "She's So Heavy." Mm-hmm. Speaking of later Beatles, you know, if you know someone like Kirk Kirkwood was was riffing and playing it or something, it's got that kind of vibe to me. Yeah, same stars too. I mean, you also that's a long song. Right. That, yeah, that song yeah. goes on for over six minutes. And that's like the part where near the end, 
you know, you have this just this great smooth bass line and these jazzy chords over top of that. But at the five minute mark, you, you sort of get this like Robert Frisch, Frippish, like single note staccato guitar solo. Oh, and like it goes into something that sounds like a come off of Lizard. Yeah. But yeah, uh-huh. She's So Heavy is a really good. Now that you say that, mm-hmm. I totally hear it. I totally yeah. hear like oh, the end part of uh, uh-huh. She's So Heavy. Exactly. Yeah. The, the good, good that. call. Good call on that. Yeah. And Robert Fripp, that makes a lot of sense too. Like, because what I was hearing on the part you're talking about at the end of Same Stars, and he does it again later in the album uh, as well on a song where all of a sudden things, he gets this kind of fuzz tone and starts doing this more simple kind of rock you know strange solos like i was thinking originally of kind of because some of the chord patterns too sometimes have like a neil young type vibe to them but robert fripp makes sense in that jeff never gets as primal and just like Roz is someone like neil young would there's always this sense of uh even if it's Roz that he's got this cerebral consciousness going on while he's playing yeah, and he never lets his tone. I mean, it sounds like he does have probably some fun with guitar pedals and things like that, but he never goes for like full blown over distortion. Mm-hmm. It's always important that you could really hear every single note he's playing. Right, right. That's you a good know? point. No, that's true. And I know from uh, from some of our off air conversation that perhaps you're favorite song might be the most most uh propulsive rock in one here diazepam yeah i love this song um and you know i uh people might hate me for saying this but like this the main it's it's kind of like almost the most traditional indie rock you know or uh you know emo kind of song on this I think there's to me another like, one that that's even more like mellower indie, indie rock that's very straightforward later but yeah well, the chorus part of this, and this is not an insult because I love the sound, but it, like to me, this almost sounds like it could sort of be something from like the second Promise Ring record uh-huh. a little bit, uh-huh. you know, just the verses kind of when he's actually playing a little bit more straightforward. Yeah. yeah. But I like this song because it sort of mixed that really straightforward part with and and again, not an insult. I'm sorry if anyone's grown. I don't know how people feel about the Promise Ring these days. I feel like they're one of those <laughs> bands that were so big that now people are like, eh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second Promise Ring record was a record I listened to at least 300 times in my life. Uh, so it, it kind of has that feeling, but it's a really like harmonically rich song um, that's going mm-hmm. on here. And that's really how I feel about in general. Like you were talking about, you know, textures being created by these great rhythms and stop and starts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is all that, but it's still, like we said, very you know, has a very sparse and open feel. Like there's, nobody's rushing to get towards anything with these songs. Everyone is really taking yeah, their time and playing true. very relaxed. And nothing about the, the magic, I think, of this record is that nothing ever sounds busy or cluttered. Yeah, which is a huge feat for this type of music. That's true. Yeah, But if you listen, not linear, linearly, but if you listen sort of, like if you don't listen to the song horizontally, you know, from the first part of the song to the end part of the song, Uh but rather listen vertically, like what's going on at any given moment. I mean, there, there is, it it is so harmonically rich. 
And, and I feel like this is a really, really good example of, of that song. And plus, this just goes through all these great different parts. You, you have parts that are fairly simple and melodic. You have parts that are a little bit more urgent. I love how the, the bass just subtly changes its rhythm for a few quick moments later oh, in the yeah. song and yeah, changes yeah. the entire feel of the song for a few moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this song really, uh, really takes me on a ride that I, I really dig. Yeah, yeah. And it's got a lot of energy that that whole that whole song and that's one thing that bass player he's never show-offy but if you listen into what he's doing he's always doing something very i don't know very uh soulful and groove oriented but never playing very simple root note stuff there's always some something slightly uh counterpoint to what's going on with the guitar and the drums it's so interesting yeah, I mean, for sure. And a lot of times he will play these sort of repetitive bass lines, very cool bass lines. Mm-hmm. Nothing that's overly simple, nothing note but also nothing that's ridiculously flashy or looking right. either. But then he will just subtly change something. He'll just add an extra note somewhere or yeah. just change rhythmically what he's doing, even if it's just for a few moments. But like that just creates such a great moment, even if it only happens, you know, one time in the song. No, it's true. That's something that I didn't catch till a few listens in and it's like, oh, okay. You know, yeah. You know, if you isolated what he is doing, he he really does just do these subtle shifts that alter the the whole feel of the whole song once he does. It's cool. Yeah. One thing that's interesting that that I found out, I feel like I've heard myself on the radio at one point I, I was a big NPR listener at one point and from the washed up emo interview that Jeff did they talk about how the song The Last Wars is a song that is used quite often as bumper music for one of their financial shows oh really NPR. it's so strange that's yeah. interesting yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, to me, the last words has almost a little bit of a Latin flavor, like I almost like bullfighter music or something. Yeah, I got a kind of like 60, mid 60s spy slash spaghetti Western kind of vibe from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could hear that completely. Yeah, I mean, that one has some great lyrics, too. And speaking of lyrics, that one and yeah, yeah, that one and same stars both have lines that are very similar in them. In the same stars, there's the line, God, don't make things you can rearrange, but that's okay. I can take the change. And then in the last wars, he has a line that's in the course as well that goes, well, God, don't play dice. So I'll not need your advice. Yeah. And, and last wars is also where the uh, song, where the album title comes from. Yeah. Uh, the bed is in the ocean while guns are on the trains. So God does not play dice uh, pop right out of me mm-hmm. because that is an Einstein quote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. That's an Einstein quote, which is often completely and totally misunderstood on several different levels. Uh, <laughs> but we can, we can talk about that another time. If I don't want to bore anybody with uh, quantum mechanics discussions and uh, Einstein's uh, thoughts on God, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, but but sure, I mean that that certainly was a line that stuck out of me because that's a very famous quote. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I, I love that has some some of my favorite lines are in the last wars too. I love. Oh, I was wrong. The God don't 
doesn't play dice is in the verse, but the the chorus part where that line, I know old men evoke last wars and holocausts, and then into German kids, Croatian kids, just like the American kids we know. Mm. Such such evocative lines. And I mean, just especially for around the time that he wrote these in the mid late 90s, you would often see, especially in cities like old men that you could tell have been through wars or if not exactly the Holocaust and stuff, it's, I don't know. It was really evocative to me. I like that. I wonder if some of these lyrics weren't written, not in the United States. Yeah, no, I, I got the sense that especially, you know, like not to call the police, not to jump ahead too much, but like not to call the police. He also sort of references like this, like this is hard rain where I'm walking and it's okay. This is not USA. No, that, that, yeah, I know that almost literally says it, but in fact, my, my guess is that he actually may have yeah. written those lyrics in, uh, in, in, in the, ne- in the Netherlands. Oh, because he references, uh, uh, the groaning, the groaning sky. And you know, that's and what Groningen, is. Yeah. Groningen is in, is in the Netherlands. Okay. So, yeah, I got um, the sense that not to call the police was, had to have been written while they were on tour in Europe. You know, it's got that feel and that sense of being in a different place you know, land and, you know, that, that kind of sense that a lot of his songs have of that kind of existential dread. Yeah. Well, if we're going to talk about lyrics for a second, yeah, I wouldn't mind going back to the first song. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are ghosts because, you know, this song, I feel like the lyrics themselves invoke sounds all over the place. Mm. Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, so quiet. I can hear the refrigerator on. Yeah. I, love I that can, he- I can hear the fabric of your sleeping bag, how it sounds against someone else's floor, a small riot that kept me up until dawn, the famous sound that the snow makes under my feet. Yeah. And then finally, and it's, it's almost like, like the song itself builds up. Like it does start very quiet, but it actually ends you know, pretty daunting and, and kind of loud, like for, for karate, at least anyway. <laughs> yeah. And at the end, you know, he goes from this, you know, the quiet sound of a refrigerator, you know, that obviously, you know, that just invokes the image of kind of maybe being alone in an apartment, you know, and you yeah, hear a pin yeah. drop that you can hear the refrigerator. Uh, but at the end, you know, what a trip. Now he's going from so quiet, you can hear a refrigerator to the end where, you know, there are ghosts crawling up on our skin and coming out of the walls. Right. I mean, what a, what a change. And and also, so there's so much like oral imagery, like in that song, in the lyrics of that song. And I really, I love it. Yeah. So that was kind of my example of like some, some great lyrics. Yeah. I I like that too. And it seems like he tends to uh, telescope in and out of perspective a lot of times within the same song, within these very personal sometimes interpersonal sentiments into these like bigger social or political things all within the same same song often but yeah that one i I totally agree and it's interesting because the first lines is talking about hearing the refrigerator on and then the last lines the last song he's talking about being alone in the uh kitchen as well oh that's interesting i didn't even pick up on that very good as well with lyrics the song up nights mm-hmm. definitely gives you a very or gives me a sense of you know sweat stained shirts and old coffee and and 
itching eyeballs, just that sense of being up way too long and being on edge, but trying to see the beauty and things. But at the same time, the lyrics almost make me think that it could be about potentially like a serial killer or something. Hmm. He's like, I make some enemies. I try to find shit that will keep me up nights is the first line. And uh, red eye drive to the morning light, maybe from doing something evil. And then the second verse starts with, I don't hurt when people die. That is unless they worked nights. Cause I know I'm going to feel like I'm going to feel no matter how many books I read talk about not being in touch with empathy or whatever, who knows? Yeah. I like that line. It's separate from everything else. The line about uh, not going to feel, you know, I'm not going to feel no matter how many books I read. I really like that one a lot. <laughs> That's just a great line just on its own. Yeah. There's a lot like that. Like the next, our next part I really like the line, red lights on amplifiers trigger secret problems in me. It's like a lot of good, good dark lines in that song anyway. Yeah. And and going to the song before it, mm-hmm. uh, bass sounds, kind of skip, skip that one. By the way, I really, I really enjoy, uh, we haven't talked too much about uh, Gavin McCarthy's drumming. I know, I know, but uh, because he is, he's so subtle with what he's doing that, you know, sometimes there's, there's not this, you know, crazy moment with this crazy fill, but I just want to say that he's really good at, at a lot of subtle things like on bass sounds, which I mean, you know, does start with a great bass line, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does, he does some great brushwork yeah. um, on that song and on up nights, he does some really great cymbal work uh, oh, to yeah. open that song up. So yeah, and he uses maracas on another song and, Mm-hmm. And he, just the beats he plays are, you know, so, you know, for being songs that have a strong sense of groove, they're very complicated drum beats, you know? Yeah. And, well, on Fatal Strategies, too. I mean, he, you know, the song kind of opens up with this sort of military, military kind of beat, you know, very, very clean mm-hmm. uh, snare drum work that, you know, definitely sounds like, you know, a trained, a trained drummer. Yeah. Oh, you know, Absolutely. but I'm. Um, but on bass sounds, I, I like this, which which is I think the shortest song on the record. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know he has that line: an image, a sound, they are one and the same. One likes to move, one stays the same. And I just you know I love that. What a what a just a great commentary on art in general, you know, and <laughs> and how you know it's it's all art, it's all expression. It's just one thing is just there for you to view, and and the other thing is you know music kind of moves through time. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I interpret it, and I really I think about that a lot when it comes to art, and especially the difficulties of talking about music. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that that I don't think I realized how difficult it was before we stu- started doing this show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know how hard it is to talk about an uh, you know an art that is you know oral and and just you know moves through time you can't capture a moment in a song the same way you can capture a moment in uh you know a piece of art or something yeah, like that static but, piece yeah yeah but i really like that line and uh you know it's all great it's all valid it's all wonderful it's just you know they're one and the same one likes to move one stays the same I like that, one. <laughs> that one's no, that me. is that that is great there's not many lines in that song and they're all like very economical and uh well-placed and that song specifically maybe the only one but well the intro the ne- the one after it too but that song i would have never thought so without having dived so deep into the catalog of the other podcasts i do the lungfish podcast but that song bass sounds the uh structure of his singing this the music itself has a very kind of 
lungfish type of drive to it. I like it. Mm. It's different than all the other songs on here too in that way. Yeah. And another song lyrically, at least the first verse, uh, you know, I'm here in a room and I have things arranged. You know, it's another song that like invokes this image of like him just like being alone That's in true. a room. Like there's a lot of songs like that. Uh, you know, middle of the night. I don't know. I just recently uh, listened to that Frank Sinatra record in the wee small hours, oh, that's which all evoked this like, oh yeah. yeah, like this classic record. And, you know, it's like the type of album that you need to listen to when you're alone and feeling depressed and it's three o'clock in the morning <laughs> and you feel like you're the only one awake in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And like, for some reason, like a lot of these songs sort of evoke that same, you know, that same imagery to me. Yeah. It's very internal music. It's definitely not a, uh social music which might be what took them so long to uh catch on as far as you know is a live experience is impressive and is great of musicians and and good as shows as they played it's, it's not the type of music that makes you like jump around and want to sing along with with the crowd yeah no no <laughs> no and uh and actually there's very few if any backing vocals at all yeah on these, uh, uh, on these songs yeah it's not a song that i would put on at a party no, no. Um, but it, it, but it might be an album I would listen to driving in my car home from the party. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so. that's a good point. Very good way to put it. And I, would, I was about to say maybe at a dinner, at a dinner thing, but maybe not even that. <laughs> no, because this isn't background music. It's not. It's not. This is music that deserves your singular focus and attention. So yeah, I don't think right. it would work that way. That's true. You know. But I think in a live scenario of people who all really dug this band, it could be a great experience. No, definitely. And yeah, you know, like you were saying in the intro today, uh, I could see like if they got back together, it would be a whole different type of vibe at their shows than when this record came out, at least for sure. Mm-hmm. The only other things that I had, uh, you know, outside is the drama has a very cool instrumental part that's in six, eight time, which mm. I think is very, very neat. And not to call the police. You know, we talked about the lyrics a little bit, uh, but I think that not to call the police. It's it's not my favorite song on this record at mm-hmm. any stretch, but it might right. be Jeff's best vocal moments. Mm. Uh, he's doing something, you know, he does his vo- he does his thing. You know, he, he, he has his voice. He's really at this point, he, there's no more of that timidness or lack of confidence. He's, he's definitely, he's got the same voice. He can't escape the way his voice sounds, but I feel like he's really grown into it and embraced it and learned how to use his vocals. I feel like not to call the police is kind of um, a song where he's maybe trying to step out a little bit in some parts from that and it, but it works for me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I think on the first album, maybe there were moments where he he tried to be a little more edgy with his voice and it kind of didn't really work for me. Yeah, because you could tell he was overthinking as he was doing it kind of thing to me. Anyway. Yeah, like I need to be a little hard here. And it's like, no, yeah. that's just not what you do. So when exactly. you when you try to do something that is not you, it, it can come off a little tacky or a little forced or, you know, in, in uh, you know, disingenuous. But but I feel like on not to call the police, I feel like Jeff kind of steps out in a way um, and is a little bit more aggressive with his vocals, but in a way that really works for his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost. Uh, it's almost too bad that we're not talking about any later stuff. It would be fun to, to uh, see what we think, you know, a handful of years, two, three, four years down the line. 
of what they're doing. Well, maybe, you know what, maybe if we get, maybe you know, a good Patreon. reaction to this episode or something and, and people are interested in, in uh, you know, hearing us talk more about these records, maybe uh, we can revisit the back half of the catalog, you know, someday out in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. The future is unwritten. Future is unwritten. Cool. So well, you have anything else to say? You want to put these rec- this record back on the shelf? Yeah. What do you want to do? Let's put it back. I have the reissues of the first two, but not this one. But I know where it would go if, if and when it does arrive, when it okay. comes out, and I can put it back. I know where it would go as well. So why don't you go first? Sure. So in front of it is a band out your way, Junction. Oh, I have that record. That's a great record. Free yeah, Samuel. Yeah, exactly. I, it's funny because I always thought of thought of it as Samuel being post Junction, but yeah. No, and I, and actually, one of the guys in Junction uh, plays in uh, that band, Don't Sleep. Oh, with uh, huh. Dave Smalley. Uh, I think it's thing. I think it's uh, yeah, Garrett. Yeah, the bassist uh, Garrett Rothman. Uh, played in uh, played in Junction. Cool. Yeah, that's a great record. I haven't listened to it in a while, but really good. I haven't either, but yeah, I liked it. It was always good for me to find bands that I really dug that had female singers because it's just so much harder than finding good aggressive music with it just, you know, nine and a half times out of ten is going to be some young shirtless dude singing instead of some woman so yeah no vanessa had a yeah well i guess has uh mm-hmm. i don't know if she's still playing in bands anymore but uh no she had a great voice yeah i agree then on the other side someone we've brought up just today in crimson yeah i don't know why i grabbed this one i've got a few but three of a perfect pair is the one that jumped in my hands on the way out so yeah sort of my least favorite of that trio of 80s adrian blue records uh but an interesting record yeah yeah. interesting one yeah i don't that's funny i don't have all of them but i've got about four or five king crimson on vinyl but that that was the nearest one Mm -hmm. maybe because it's the latest one i've got what about you all right well for me i mean so for you so karate is is the first k in your vinyl collection and uh yeah, this junction, but for me, of course, it can't be because of Kansas. And <laughs> I have tons of Kansas records, so the one that's on the Definitely. end of the Kansas would be Power. This would Whoa. be the 1986 record. This is the one and only record with Steve Morse on guitar. I remember uh, he that plays on this record. Um, yeah, all I wanted was kind of a like a decent, decent sized song. It also uh, this album also marked the return of Steve Walsh back into the band after after an absence of a few albums so i have not listened to this record in years so don't ask <laughs> i have no idea on the other side a record i probably listened to once in my entire life uh nick kershaw remember this guy i was kinda, sort of like uh i remember his name i i can't place what his music so i, I feel kinda, like i feel like I feel, is it a mix of like 50s and new wave or something no I, I feel like it was a little more in that like um paul young mm-hmm type of that new wave right. like yeah. suit and tie pop yep. kind of stuff he definitely wore suits i remember that yeah he definitely, he definitely was <laughs> the type of guy who wore a suit on stage so this is also from oh how about this this is also from uh this is also 86? from 1986 how about that two records from 86 uh i think this is, is like second or third record this is a radio musicola um 
Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna put this on. <laughs> I might put on the Kansas record, but I don't know about this one. So anyway, that's where karate would live if I had it in my collection. And you know what? Maybe I'll pick this one up through Numero Group. Um, I don't know if I'll pick up all of them, but uh, I think mm-hmm. the maybe the second and third records. I think uh, might dig having. Yeah. yeah, and they're they're going in order so far. So the uh, bed is the ocean would be the next one. Yeah. And I think Jeff Farina, Jeff Goddard, and I should f- form a band. Jeff. We could just call it like the <laughs> Jeffs. Yeah. Oh my God. So speaking of Jeff Farina, is now the time? No. Oh, yeah. That's right. We've got a guest today. Let's talk to the man himself. Let's talk to Jeff. Farina. And if you want to hear the whole interview, Patreon. That's right. Yeah. Right. And it's worth it. It's not uh it's not padding. It's it's all quality stuff. So
All right, Jeff, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess we'll start with, let's start with right now. You know, what, what have you been doing with your time during the pandemic? What's got you through? What keeps you inspired right now? Uh, well, I, I teach uh, music at DePaul University, and all through the pandemic, I um, did that remotely, and we just started um, classes again in person. So that's sort of where my head's at right now, and I'm uh, enjoying seeing my students, even though I can't see their whole faces. Um, it's nice to, to be there in person. And uh, so I've been working on that. And, you know, the, the karate reissues with Numero, um, we've been working a lot on that all summer and um you know i practice every day still and i um, as we were just chatting about you know fool around with vintage guitars and, and amplifiers so I, I have no problem keeping myself busy during the pandemic right right yeah i'd ordered the those first two final reissues for the karate that's been announced uh what's the plans and the uh scope of of that project so we're doing uh, those two first records. I guess they're out now, or they're coming out, um, and uh, I think they've already been been uh, been selling pretty well. And um, we have uh, the third record, "The Bed Is in the Ocean," that's probably I think also going to come out on vinyl. I'm not sure when, maybe early next year. And you know, we're trying to understand um, people's reactions and what what the fans want, and and to try to figure out how to how to package everything. You know, Numero is known for these really elaborate uh, box sets, so we might do something like that. Uh, but right now, we're just trying to take it slow, and and you know, we have seven albums and a bunch of singles, and that will uh, over the next coming years um, all be released in uh, pro probably mostly in vinyl format, but other formats as well. And an interview I saw of yours from earlier in the year, you, there was talk of maybe some of the uh, live material coming out too. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's another thing I did this summer. We have, you know, I have a stack of CDs and cassettes and, and DATs and a lot of old uh, formats of that people have sent, sent us over the years um, of shows that we've played. So uh, we digitized a lot of that and, I think at some point we may um, I, we're going to go through all that and see if there's um, you know tracks that are worth uh, releasing. Um, you know we have the two live records. We also have five nine five and the live record from Italy, um, Barcassoni Vecchio, and I think that both of those uh, will also be be uh, eventually find their way out on Numero. I'm not sure what the you know priority is right now. I think the studio stuff is the priority, but yeah, we're going to look through and, and see what we have. I think there's there's a lot of good stuff there. Nice. Nice. That's exciting to hear, actually. I want to return to the the music teaching or sure. uh, at some point, like later in the conversation, but let's let's go back, let's go all the way back and start with the first time you became aware of uh, you know, punk rock, hardcore, whatever, and also part two would be when you became aware of like the DC bands and what it meant to you. Yeah. I mean, um, so I grew up in, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania or near, near Harrisburg, a little bit, uh, to the West of there. And, um, you know, this is, uh, the, the, I was a teenager in the eighties, um, early mid eighties. And, um, I, I think when I, you know, the first records I bought when I first got into music, um, I 
think I started buying punk records very early on. I remember, you know, I remember buying one trip to our local record store at the mall um, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we had a, you know, a little record store and there was a, a punk section actually in the record store. It was maybe this, this big, right. um, so, you know, maybe, maybe there were, you know, 30 or 40 records, but it had every discord record uh, right when they came out um, in there. So, you know, Saturdays I would, I would go and bring the lunch money I saved, you know, all week. And uh, if there was a, a record on discord, I would buy it no matter what it was. I bought every record um, that came out on SST Discord, Better Youth Organization, um, and some other labels that just showed up there. And, uh, you know, some of the first records um, I bought, I remember buying uh, Get It Away, the SSD control record when it came out, and, you know, the Minor Threat records, and, and um, a lot of that kind of first generation um, Discord stuff. And, you know, there were some kids in the town that were older than me that were punks as well. They were maybe 16 or 17 when I was 13 or 14. Um, this is in the mid 80s or early 80s, I guess, and uh, mid 80s, I guess. And they would, um, you know, I learned through them. I mean, they would bring bands uh, to play in Harrisburg from D.C. and Baltimore and Philadelphia mm -hmm. and New York. And the D.C. scene just had this really cool, you know, unique sound that was really kind of ascetic and, and raw and, you know, in, in a way it always felt a little more serious than other uh, punk that I was hearing at the time. And I really kind of latched onto that. I mean, I was kind of a moody, you know, arty brooding kid. So, um, you know, that a lot of that, the intensity of the DC music really stuck, stuck with me. And, you know, I also really early on liked um, some of the, you know, weirder bands in the, in the punk scene that, that kind of, um, you know, I've always really been in, interested in, in a lot of different genres of music. Um, we were just talking about John Coltrane, who is a hero of mine as well, um, since, since I was in high school. And I've always loved bands that sort of fused uh, in an interesting way, you know, punk and, and funk or punk and, and jazz, um, you know, the big boys, the Minutemen uh, were, were two bands early on that I thought were really interesting. The Rhythm Pigs is another band I thought was really interesting. Um, and then, uh, I think, you know, we were talking about, uh, beat this band beef eater, um, that came out on discord and they just really blew my mind. I think for a while they were my favorite band. Um, Doug had this slap, you know, bass style that just seemed so out of place. Um, but it worked so well, you know, and then Fred played oh, this kind totally. of heavy metal guitar. Um, and it was just like, you know, every, every person in that band seemed like they came from a different genre of music and it was really fascinating. So, um, you know, I guess, um, there was also, the, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, well, it's just interesting. You mentioned rhythm pigs since, uh, they got the rhythm pigs drummer and, uh, beef feeder towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then they did that band, uh, Fidelity Jones that I think is also a really interesting band. Yeah. Um, but that stuff, you know, I, I think um, in we, we had kind of a small punk scene um, in, in the 80s. And, and like I said, there were some older kids that were really the pioneers um, who were around in the late 70s. And there was also a really interesting kind of garage rock scene around Pennsylvania that, that uh, kind of mixed with the punk scene. Some of those shows, you know, you'd have like the cynics and the cool Italians play with mm -hmm. like a punk band from D.C. or something like that. And it was, uh, you know, for for a, for a small conservative city in the 80s it was actually I, I was exposed to some really unique music and the dc thing in particular you know we were just an hour away or a little bit more than an hour away hour and a half away and you know we would go down there to see shows and a lot of those bands came up 
Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I saw a government issue probably, I don't know, 15 times or something. I mean, they would, they would always come up and play in our little, we had some little, you know, a VFW post and, and a democratic club and some other stuff around, uh, Harrisburg where we put on shows. So I got to see a lot of DC bands and there was always sort of like a division in the scene between people who liked DC music and people who, uh, liked music that was a little bit more maybe macho or, or something like that. And, and, you know, I remember getting called emo, you know, when I was, 16 years old as a, you know, it was a derogatory term. It was something that, you know, you like that right to spring record. You're, you know, I, I can't say the other words that, that were used at the time, but so yeah. that's the first time I heard that term. And, you know, the DC scene was really present in Pennsylvania. Um, there, we were just really close and there were a lot of great bands that were coming all the time. And when did you, uh, I know it sounds like we're kind of jumping around, but I'm trying to circle in. Had you been playing guitar by this point? when you started yeah. going to these shows? Yeah, I had a band, a uh, punk band when I was in high school, a uh, few, few different bands. Um, the one that I remember uh, was, was named, we were named after a Dungeons and Dragons spell. Um, the name was uh, Fain Death. Uh, That's awesome. And it was myself and a drummer, um, this young woman, Jesse, and my best friend at the time, Hans Bowers, who played a Hondo guitar that was shaped like a machine gun. And... <sighs> You know, it was your typical high school punk band. I think there's some recordings floating around somewhere. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we played shows. I've been playing shows since I was, um, you know, I don't know, 15 or 14 in, in, in little punk bands. Um, nothing good, of course, until, you know, later. But um, yeah, so, I, you know, the punk scene in, in the 80s, everybody was in a band. And, and right. you know, everybody that went to shows, like you, if you liked that music, you picked up a guitar, picked up some drums and, and made a band. I mean, I think half the people at, at the shows that I remember were, were in bands. Um, and that was always a part of it. That was, you know, that was part of what was so great about it. You could do, you could participate in it instead of, you know, just being a fan. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was definitely empowering that way. And because, yeah. I mean, there were definitely bands that you saw that you knew, okay, maybe I can't do that right now in the way they're doing it, but you know, it, get, it was also a license to be like, you know, you can get up there, you're welcome to get up there and, and show whatever it is that you've got to bring to the table. Yeah. And then you'd see a lot of bands that you're like, oh, okay, I can definitely do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're obviously, a you know, it seems a lifelong student of the guitar. Were you already uh, fairly serious early on? Well, I, I not, I mean, I can't say I was serious um, about anything when I was 15 years old, but I, I, um, played drums, uh, I played guitar and I played bass. So I wasn't very focused. Um, mm -hmm. I would just, you know, if the, if the band needed a bass player, I would play bass. Um, if the, you know, and, and I, I fooled around on, on drums and I didn't get really serious, uh, about guitar until college, I guess. But, um, you know, when I was my dad, to his credit, you know, really wanted me to go to, I, I wasn't a great high school student and he really wanted me to be serious about something. And he was very open to, you know, what I wanted to do. But I think when I was 16 years old, he took me to Berkeley College of Music um, to see it in Boston. We woke up really early one morning and we flew up there. And, I, you know, I just remember seeing Boston and, and, you know, just talking to some professors at Berkeley and kind of understanding oh, you know, this is what, this is where it happens. Like, this is really what it means to be good. And, you know, I remember I, I got up at, I think I was stayed up the whole night before because I was so excited to go to Boston for the first time. And we flew up there 
and I had these interviews and saw these great musicians and just, you know, spent a lot of time on the campus and really understood what I needed to do at that moment, I think. And I remember I came back in that night, I, I stayed up all night and practiced because I was so excited to, I really wanted to get in. And I did get in um, in 1988 and I graduated from there. But I, I think that, you know, when I was, I think like a lot of 16 year olds, um, you know, my, my I, I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And I really understood that I wasn't going to do anything else uh, in, in life. I just wasn't that passionate about anything but music. So, you know, I got serious really quick around around the time I was um, 16 years old. And, you know, the other thing is I, I was also a little bit of like, a, you know, a jazz band um, kind of, kind of, uh, I, I actually wasn't in the jazz band, but I was kind of like a jazz nerd. And I, you know, had little bands with high school jazz musicians, mostly playing bass when I was uh, a teenager. So I was really interested in a lot of different um I mean, jazz in particular, but a lot of different kinds of music. Um, I also, you know, I grew up also on classic rock. And so all that was kind of in the mix from the very, very beginning. And I was playing, you know, I was try learning jazz standards when I was like 14 or 15 years old, you know, in a really poor way. I mean, you know, Autumn Leaves and, and you know, these, these kinds of tunes playing with high school musicians. But it still opened me up to, you know, I remember our NPR station, you could hear you know, occasionally you'd hear some Coltrane or Miles or something like that. Um, and, and that really stuck with me when I was when I was young. Me too. Me too. I remember hearing uh, Bitches Brew for the first time. It, they played the whole thing on the NPR station. And that's pretty rel relevatory. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I totally relate to most of your story, except for the getting serious and going to uh, Berkeley College of <laughs> Music. But uh you know, for for me at that point in the '80s, I was fully immersed in the the punk, the hardcore scene, both philosophically and, and musically and active wise. But at the same time, same as you, I was getting deeper and deeper into jazz. I loved a lot of '60s and '50s, but a lot of '60s into '70s music and many things. But and I kept you know being opened up to so many different veins of things. You know, but at the time it didn't, as a teenager, I didn't feel liberated enough to, uh, you know, in the punk crowd be like, oh yeah, you know, check out this Charles Mingus or, you know, I actually, actually kind of like the Grateful Dead or what, you know, that, that was like, you know, not, uh, in my crowd anyway, not, not as uh, encouraged. And so, you know, when I would see bands like, like Beefeat or like we mentioned, or, you know, I know a big influence for you, Minutemen, you know, it's, it was super, uh, I guess, empowering as well to uh, see these bands and like a band like Saccharin Trust or something that would just fully go way out there and take a chance. And by being so authentic, you know, way more authentic than playing uh, your standard third generation negative approach riff or whatever, you know? Yeah, the, um, you know, the, yeah, I loved some of the SST stuff um, that was happening around the time. Um, there was, a, there was that band uh, Worm that, that was really mm -hmm. interesting, that, that record. Um, and yeah, Saccharin Trust and, and uh, you know, some, I remember this band called Blind Idiot God, this weird like dope right. thing that came out. I remember out that, and, yeah. You know, and I mean, one of the cool things about um, Pennsylvania, you know, there were so few of us and we were so isolated that it really was just a scene for freaks, for people who were just not into the, the I mean, not to be stereotypical, but, you know, sports or, you know, theater, or these types of things. The punk scene really was, I, I remember some of my friends were just, 
into all different kinds of music. Um, you know, I remember buying, uh, you know, Stravinsky, the rights of spring at a thrift store with my punk friends and, and putting that on and just being blown away. You know, I knew nothing about it at the time. And I think that, um, something that was really cool that I, that I really cherish about, uh, that, that scene is a, it was kind of open in a way just because there, it was, we weren't cool at all. We were from Pennsylvania from this little city and everybody just, there were no real pretensions. So, um, you know, it really, I, I met a lot of people my age, um, from maybe different school districts who, you know, would go to punk shows, but were interested in all different kinds of, of music. And because we, you know, because of that, I think I've always been really open-minded and I've never really thought that I'm into one genre or one other genre. I've always um, liked all different kinds of music. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, is it, is a artist that wants to put something real out there? Not that you, ha you have to like things you don't like, but if you just close yourself off into one little box of the genre, it, it's kind of, it's strange. I mean, I guess there are people that have done it and do great stuff too. I guess you can, you can take any path now that I think about it, but you know, it is more interesting, you know, the folks that like everything versus one thing. Sorry. I just went on a digression because I was, was going to say like, you have to explore all avenues, but then at the same time, there's people that get super granular in one thing and that can be really interesting too. Well, I, I, lo I love that. I mean, I, you know, I love, I love, um, you know, for example, like rockabilly, you know, I, lo I love seeing, you know, these bands that are, are, have been doing, you know, essentially different versions of the same thing for, with these little nuances and they just get so refined, you know, that yeah. it's really, really refined music. I, I love musicians like that. I, I, there, there are, a lot of musicians like that, that I, that I follow, I just could never do that. I, I just think it's for, you know, I think some people are, um, you know, certainly in the punk scene. I mean, there, there are, you know, these icons that do, you know, different versions of a band for many, many years, and they kind of dig deeper into one, one thing that they're doing. And I, I, you know, I, I think that's fantastic. I just have never been able to do that myself. I don't have the long-term focus. I, I get interested in, in different things, you know, every six months I, I, kind of yeah. veer off into some other direction and you know i used to think that that was a weakness but now you know i'm i, I don't care anymore i just do what i want to do and, and enjoy it and try to learn as much as i can while i'm doing it. i think that's what helps it would seem keep the the inspiration alive keep the spirit alive is you know that that kind of sense of not just on your instrument but on uh with your ears just you know that sense of discovery it's like yeah, essential certainly. i think Certainly. I think that's true. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I tell my students, I stopped, you know, maturing when I was their age, when I was 18 or 19 years old. I mean, I really do feel like a perpetual music student and I'm, I'm completely happy with it at, you know, I'm 52 years old and I, I, I have the, have the life of a 19 year old music student. I think, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And we've touched on a couple, uh, a couple of the bands, but like, you know, I've seen in interviews, you, you often mention Beefeater and Dane Bramage, which is awesome because, you know, Beefeater were, were so important, so great, but are still kind of a little bit of a black sheep outside of DC as far as the Discord catalog. And Dane Bramage, most people don't even know about, but they're, they were like literally my favorite uh, David Goral project that he did, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I remember those two bands is because they were personal experiences. I mean, the, the Dane Bremen show that I saw, um, I think I saw them a couple times, but the one I remember was at the Demi in, um, 
Enola, Pennsylvania. And, you know, we were, I just remember standing right up front and just the, the noisy confusion was just so, you know, strange and, and beautiful and weird. And uh, it was something that really stuck with me. And, you know, with Beefeater, um, you know, I bought a place for lovers and went to see Beefeater at uh, the VIP in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in the mid 80s. And I met Tomas, and he just was so kind. Uh, and I wrote him a letter, um, or I wrote a letter to Discord that eventually got got to him uh, around that time. I think that, that right before Need a Job came out. And I, I said, you know, I saw you um, play the show, and you played all these new songs. Um, and I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to hear the old songs. And I, I said, you know, I really want to start a band, but I don't know if I can do this or that or the other thing. And he wrote me this this uh, really thought thoughtful letter back that said, um, you know, we're sorry we didn't play these songs, but we're doing this new record uh, and we need to pra practice those songs. And the way that we practice them is to play them live. And, you know, karate really adopted that. We were always playing the next record and pissing off people <laughs> because, you know, they wanted to hear the old songs and we always wanted to kind of um, move forward and play the new stuff. And then, you know, I remember really vividly what Tomas wrote um, in this letter. He said, you know, don't overthink it. Just get together with your friends and play music and don't worry about what it's going to sound like and don't worry about what kind of band you want to be. Just go out there and be with people and uh, do it and everything will work itself out. And I just thought that was fantastic advice. I mean, I have my students come to me now and they say, you know, they, they, they overthink everything and they just have these really nuanced ideas of what they want to sound like when they make music. And my advice is often, you know, did you play a gig this week or did you, how many times did you practice this week? Um, and, you know, ju just to be out there making music in every way that you can, especially in front of people, um, I think is great advice for young musicians. So Tomas wrote me that, that letter and I actually carried it with me. Um, you know, I was really proud of it. And I was in D.C., during one of the, it was I, it was the Peace March, or there were a couple Peace Marches, but this was called the Peace March. I don't quite remember which march it was. And I was sleeping yeah, on the floor. 85 or so? Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. And I was sleeping on the floor of a church with a whole bunch of other activists, and uh, somebody stole my bag while I was sleeping, and the letter was in that bag. So um, I always remember that kind of interaction and that I kind of carried that letter with me um, for inspiration. And that's part of the reason why Beefeater um, you know, in my life, I have a personal uh, connection with them, um, especially with Tomas, uh, just yeah. just because, you know, he, he um, was kind and, and helped me and didn't, you know, he didn't know me or who, who I was. And so that that stuck with me. Yeah, no. And that, that totally jibes with my memory of him, too. Uh, being in the area, of, of course, had way more interactions, but like and saw them a ton. But, you know, one of the first times when I was 14 and went to Discord house and uh, interviewed Ian for the first time. Then I talked to Tomas and interviewed them next time I came in and him and Doug were, yeah, two of the most generous, kind, but intelligent and uh, uh, full of vision people that I had talked to. And he also was like, Hey, you know, here, let me do the cover of your next zine. If you want, I'll design it. I'm like, wow. You know, so for sure. Is that why you uh, covered need a job on the in the fish tank thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we you know we had this idea for that fish tank session to do sort of, for lack of a better term, uh, political songs. I guess we used to call them political songs, or so, you know, songs that uh, draw into question um, American 
policies, different, you know, different kinds of public policy and foreign policy. And that was a natural uh, choice, I think. Uh, I mean, it was a very loose theme, of course, but um, I've always loved that song. Uh, it's so simple, oh, yeah. you know, it's just, just this little, you know, bass line that has two notes in it and, uh, and barely you know, a guitar, just yeah, there. one guitar note, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's such a cool song. I think, um, it's really, you know, that song's really interesting because it's, there's really nothing there, but it's, uh, musically it's interesting because it's about phrasing, you know, it's about the cadences. And I think that the, the band, that, that band, if Tomas, if not the entire band had this sort of natural, it sounds like a song that, you know, they were just sort of jamming and maybe it naturally kind of came out and mm -hmm. that, you know, songs do when, when you're having fun with your bandmates, I think. So, um, yeah, it's a really, I, I love that song. I've always loved it. I've always loved that, that record. I think it's a fascinating record. Oh EPA. yeah. The one, and the one that some people don't even know about even fans of the band, cause it was barely out for a minute and never repressed. But yeah, I know that, that song, especially that was always one of my favorite tracks of theirs, especially live. Yeah. But, uh, what you said about the fish tank, I didn't even uh, think about that connection. That's as far as lyrical themes, because I thought it was just more of uh, these bands that inspired you that you covered. But uh, that's but, also true. That's yeah, also it works on both levels. That's that's great. Yeah, she did. Uh, what was it? Strange Fruit, a bunch of Minutemen, Dylan, and Talk Talk, right? Yeah, that's right. And Mark Hollis. So yeah, one of Mark Hollis's solo tunes. Yeah. 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 That was a really fun uh, session. We got to work with a engineer or producer. I've, I've never really worked with like a real producer before. And the guy we worked with, this Laya, this guy, a guy from, I think he's from Croatia and he's a pretty well-known producer um, in Europe. And uh, it was fun because he, it sounded completely different than a record we would have made on our own. And it was uh, really cool to, to have somebody like a producer had kind of a vision. And it, yeah, it, it's a nice little, uh, you know, just a side road in your yeah. catalog. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back thinking about your trip to Berkeley. And for some people like, like yourself, it would be just totally inspiring and be like, okay, this is, you know, I see these serious musicians, I hear what they can do and it. You know, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. And some people would go and be like, oh, wow, this is daunting. I don't think, you know, I like music, but I don't know if I can spend the hours that they're doing or put in the intense work that it takes to get to their level. I think I would be somewhere in between or I'd probably feel both at the same time. <laughs> but uh, at that point, was that when, you know, around that time was when you knew guitar was main focus you wanted to uh, put your creative energies into? I, th I think so. Um, so you, when I got to Boston, you know, the, I, I, I mean, one of the great things is there, there was the Boston punk scene or indie scene at that point, yeah. I think. And this is, this is, I got there in eight, 1988 and there were a lot of interesting things happening musically. I mean, the one thing I remember really vividly is when Daydream Nation came out, um, that really, it was something, you know, everybody points to nevermind. And I think for a lot of people who were, not into punk, we're just into rock music, never mind is a watershed moment. But for me, I think, way, um, yeah. you know, when Daydream Nation came out, I remember it was in the window of, um, it was, in, you know, featured in Newberry Comics, like to see that that record in the in the window from Sonic Youth, you know, I had like Confusion of Sex and, a, you know, some of the early, I mean, Sister and Evil right. earlier. And, and just, and, you know, then I went to see them at the Somerville Theater and 
I, th- I had kind of gotten the sense that punk music had changed. I also saw, I think, Beat Happening that summer or something like that. And, and um, there were all of these different, really unique influences that were kind of mixing with punk to create, you know, whatever we, I guess, it, it, you know, we kind of thought of it as indie rock at the time, for lack of a better term. But, um, you know, and in Boston, um, which was, I think that there, were, there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on locally on that level. So I kind of got involved in that. And, you know, I quickly found the bands that I liked um, to see in Boston. And, and I spent a lot of time in the rock scene there early on. And, you know, as far as Berkeley goes, you know, a couple things. Um, I've always, uh, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of an introvert and I've always loved practicing. Um, I have no problem practicing. I have practiced, I think, three or four hours a day since I was probably... 14 years old and I by day I I mean every single day that I'm not on tour um you know I spent three or four hours um not playing but actually practicing actually working on um you know whatever I'm working on at that 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 that's not counting any kind of songwriting aspect it's all just practice just practicing yeah not songwriting I mean occasionally I'll go on songwriting binges where I'll spend a month just you know spending most of that time songwriting, but in general, I just try to become a better player or a more developed player, or, you know, learn music that I love. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I got to Berkeley, I had, it, it was daunting in a sense, um, but it, I had no problem fitting in because I, I really um, was serious in that way. And I think a lot of the time that a lot of college students spend socially, I spent, transcribing music or in the library at Berkeley, like watching, um, you know, this is before you could go on YouTube and see videos. So I, you know, I remember just looking for every, you know, all these jazz performances and reading uh, these PhD uh, theses that were written about, uh, you know, Coltrane and and Albert Eiler and that that were, you know, in in the Berkeley library and really studying music uh, seriously. And it just felt like, I mean, it felt like it feels now there's just this big vast world um, that that is so new and so fascinating, and I just wanted to, you know, listen to records and see music and study music and and practice. And I I, I had no problem with that that part of it. I've always kind of been serious in in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there there was a, the Boston rock scene was kind of happening in the background, and um, I got interested in that and started playing in bands in Boston. And I think. Uh, what happened is I started, um, I was in this band and our singer quit. I was in a band um, called Crush Skill uh, in, um, with some Brandeis students, including Doug Deneen, who was the first uh, drummer on the on Hate Your Friends, the first Lemonhead rec- Lemonheads record. And he was a real serious drummer. Um, he studied for years with Bob Galati from, from the Fringe um, and, and just with, he went to Southern India and lived there and studied mm-hmm. South Indian drumming. And then he lived, you know, with Thich Nhat Hanh on a, on his, you know, retreat in France. And he, he's, he's now a Buddhist monk, um, just a really serious guy who was very much into music. Um, and we would just stay up all night and, and we would go through like the Omnibook and play Charlie Parker tunes. Like I would, I would do my classes and then I would like go to a show and then after the show, I'd ride my bike out to Waltham and we would start practicing at midnight and we would practice until like seven in the morning or eight in the morning, just like either playing our songs or, you know, trying to, he would show me something that Bob Galati showed him and we would just have these like endless jams. And then I would wait, you know, I would sleep for a couple hours, you know, on the studio floor or something and, and ride my bike to class at nine in the morning. So that's what my college life was like. Um, and, and I loved it. I mean, I, I, I absolutely loved it. It was just what I wanted to be doing at that, at that point. 
I think I got more confused when I left college. <laughs> when, I, when I was in music school, I felt completely at home. And then when I went to grad school, it was the same thing. I just, I, I, I've always loved um, being in school. And I think it's why I ended up being a prof music professor because I, I love to teach. I love to learn. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you uh, are subscribed to the whole uh, Malcolm Gladwell, the whole 10,000 hours theory? No, I'm more, uh, I don't. I subscribe to the, uh, there's uh, another author, a Danish author who wrote a book called Peak, and he uh, debates Malcolm Gladwell's theory of 10,000 hours. Um, and I can't, because you brought this up out of the blue, <laughs> I can't remember exactly why I sort of sided with this Danish author. Um, I don't remember the, deb the debate, but um, I think, sure, 10,000 hours, I'm sure you can quantify what it takes for one person to become good but you know what is good and yeah, yeah. what is the quality of those 10,000 hours i mean i sure. think that you know the thing that i notice in a lot of my students um is that i think a lot of and, and myself it took me a long time to learn how to learn if that makes sense to to understand what practicing really is and what i really need to do to be able to learn something to know it inside and out um, to be able to perform it. Um, mm -hmm. It took me, you know, into my adult life to understand what practices constitute uh, learning. And I think that, um, especially in music, because there are no nuances, you can either play, you know, if, I, if I'm, for example, you know, I, I um, am really enamored with uh, this Coleman Hawkins, uh, it's, it's a, f a famous solo that he did on Body and Soul. Um, and I'm kind of getting a little bit more into 40s jazz um, over the past couple of years. So I've you know, learn the solo and pl play it note for note along with the recording. And it's it's just such a beautiful solo. And it took me months to be able to play it with the recording. But it's this quantifiable goal that I, I want to be able to play these exact same notes, you know, play along with this recording um, that I can set for myself. And that that goal will tell me if I'm practicing well enough or, or not. And I've and I think that's what I love about music is that there's no bullshit. You, you set yourself a goal. Um, you know, with karate, we set a lot of goals for ourselves. Um, you know, the music that we wanted to be able to perform, you know, the, the parts that we wanted to improvise. And I've stood on many stages and failed at those goals. So, you know, and I've also succeeded at them. So that's a big thing for me, I think, like really um, understanding. I, I guess I'm, I've um, lost the thread of your original question. <laughs> It was the 10,000 hours. And so you're oh, right. talking about how to, how yeah. you approach practicing what it constitutes for you. Yeah. I don't, I, I, who knows if I spent, you know, 10,000 or 1,000 or a hundred thousand, I, I have mm -hmm. no idea. Um, I don't, I don't think that quantifying it, um, is so useful. I mean, it's a, it's just one of those, you know, it's a, a little gimmicky, like the shocking, you know, how can we keep, how can we think about 10,000 hours or something? Right. So I, I, my answer to you is I, I don't find it so useful. I yeah, guess. that kind of brings up a question I was going to ask. I assume most of the solos you would do in karate live would be improvised, or would there be phrases that you would make sure to hit and then improvise other parts? Or yeah, so it really depends on the era and the song and these types of things. Um, you know, I went. I think um, list, I've been listening back to a lot of live recordings as we had spoken about earlier, and. I went through a period, I think, um, around the uh, Unsolved and Some Boots where I improvised a little too 
much, <laughs> a little too far out there um, in some ways and a little too separate from the rhythm of the rest of the band. So, um, you know, I experimented as a guitar player in karate. I think there were different stages. Um, some were more successful than others um, in terms of the improvisation. I think with karate, you know, one of the more successful ways that we improvised was when we did it as, as a band, I think, in some songs. Um, like Caffeine or Me, um, what that kind of became live towards the end of our career. And then um, some some later songs um, in hundreds and some of the stuff off of Unsolved, where we really listened to each other. And I was maybe not playing so much of a solo, but we were, we were um, you know, more playing together. I, I kind of wish we would have done more conversational. Yeah, more conversational. Um, that's an uh, accurate uh, description. And I think, you know, I learned a lot through karate. Some, some you know, I, I think I went out on some limbs that I guess I wish weren't on, on records at this point. But, <laughs> weren't um, documented. <laughs> weren't documented, yeah. But, you know, it's part of learning. And, yes. and um, so, yeah, I mean, I think ideally um, when we were at our best, um, there were always significant parts of our life set where we had decided that we were going to kind of listen to each other and, and see what happens or where one of us was going to lead or mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, playing these exact uh, parts that were wrote. And I think as a band, we had to really learn how to do that uh, over it. It took us a while to do it right, I think. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, that's a whole nother skill set. And it is, it's, to my mind, it's it, as much a listening ability as a playing ability. Yeah, I think, you know, this is my problem with the 10,000 hours um, theory that you brought that up now. It's, it's interesting to think about mm -hmm. is, you know, I heard Jim Hall say sometimes he, in, in his old age, he said, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I pick up the guitar and despite he, I, I'm paraphrasing, um, but he said, despite, you know, my vast experience, I, I can't play it. It's as if I'm holding the guitar for the first time because I'm too tired or my, I'm just mentally not there. And I think that any good musician, um, you know, that when I really listen to, you know, I, I, I read and, and devour um, autobiographies and autobiographical material from artists and, and musicians. Um, I love to hear musicians talking about what they do and articulating it the way that they think that they do it rather than somebody analyzing it. Sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I hear over and over again, the same version in musicians that I really idolize the same version of this, you know, expression, which is, um, that they're, they're children. I mean, they, they, they just, mm -hmm. there's this vast amount of material and, and ideas to learn and they haven't even gotten started yet. And I think that, um, when you really get into practicing and you really, spend a lot of time consistently uh, with the guitar, both like practicing and also in situations where you're under a lot of pressure, for example, in school as a student or on stage or something like that, you really start to understand that you'll never be good, that it's, it's really, you'll never, you'll never stand up there and feel like you're a, a master of it because you never like, I got this. Yeah. When, when you, <laughs> when you learn, when you start to understand like an array of, practices, you know, like what, what a blues, what BB King does and what maybe Coleman Hawkins does, Coleman Hawkins does, but, but also what like Ian does or, you know, Fred, you know, like also, you know, punk, I mean, really like hardcore right-hand punk, you know, all the, all these types of things that require all, a, I think a really disparate skill set. You just understand that there's no way that you'll ever be a master of the, of that of the instrument you know it's just a it's a misnomer i think that i i just think it's a misnomer i don't think that there's any 
unless you're just, you know, focusing on one genre, um, I don't think you can ever feel like you're, you're good at it. And I think and even the, then, yeah. No, yeah. The more experience you get, the, the, the more you feel like you, the more work you feel like you have to do, I think. No, that totally makes sense. Oh yeah. So you, at some point, like, I didn't know, I heard on the washed up emo interview you did a few years ago, you talk about that you actually moved to DC for a tiny bit and were going to start a band there or did. Yep. Yeah. So I graduated from Berkeley in, uh, 92 and I, my sister who, uh, you probably know is now in, um, the evens and from, from the warmers, she's a drummer, um, great drummer. And she, uh, was, she's, four years younger than me. And right when I was graduating, she was starting her first year of college at Corcoran uh, in DC. So I uh, moved in with her and Joe McRedman, um, who was our longtime uh, friend. And for a, a little while, my sister's sweetheart, um, I think at the time, Joe McRedman from Hoover and Crown Hate Ruin. And Joe and Chris Farrell, for, also from Hoover and the Sorts, uh, and I had a band called Victor Deluxe. Um, mm -hmm. And we, I played bass and sang, and Joe played guitar and sang, uh, and uh, Chris, of course, played drums. And it was a cool band. It was fun. I, in fact, I've just recently found a live recording uh, from one of the two shows that we played. I think we played at DC Space once, and then we played um, a Positive Force, uh, or no, Simple Machine, some kind of Simple Machine's Positive Force thing. I remember Kristen was involved. Um, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, and I stayed I stayed for less than a year in DC because um, I just really missed Boston and I did not enjoy living in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, we lived near the Positive Force house. I, I loved mm -hmm. the um, scene. I mean, I just, it, it was around the time of, it was, you know, the summer Riot Girl was really heavy. Um, this is 92, I think. And a lot of Positive Force stuff was happening. A lot of great, you know, Nation of Ulysses was playing all the time. Really great generation of DC bands. Um, so all that stuff, I was so excited to kind of get back into that. But then I just really missed Boston. Um, so and I guess I was kind of transient at the time I was running around the country and doing all kinds of different things and following bands around and doing zines. And I just ended up back in Boston uh, about a year later. And that's when I started uh, karate. Which kind of brings up something also that came to mind is, you know, obviously there's folks in the scene in different pockets, different places, different uh, bands that are amazing musicians, whether trained or not. And then there's a lot of people that are amazing musicians that are completely don't even know what notes they're playing, but they express themselves beautifully in the punk scene and that, that was part of the charm of it but you know how conscious were you starting out with karate being so hyperversed in uh, theory and, and such compared to probably all the other bands you were playing with on the bills well i think at that time i went through i mean i think you can really hear it with secret stars um you know i went through this period of kind of maybe rebelling against, uh, you know, the, my, my music training in some ways. Mm -hmm. I think that in 93, I really kind of wanted to be in a raw, you know, I kind of wanted to forget about all the, that stuff. Maybe I was burnt out from school. I don't remember, but, um, I wasn't thinking very hard about, I, I think I really almost purposefully wanted to be in bands that were, you know, back to basics and kind of raw bands and secret stars mm -hmm. was cer certainly that, um, and the first two karate records, you know, there's a lot of, I think, 
punk influences and, you know, especially the second one, I think, you know, we, we everybody was under the spell of Fugazi, um, you know, at the time. And, and that said, you know, in the early karate stuff, I mean, Caffeine or Me, that melody, that guitar melody is right off of uh, McCoy Tyner, uh, that, that record, Real McCoy, I forget the name of the song um, on there. But, um, you know, all my music has strange influences that come from jazz melodies or blues melodies or, you know, from different, different genres or something. So that, that was always there. But, you know, in terms of the musicianship, I mean, I think I, in the nineties, I just wasn't paying so much attention. I mean, I remember when I was in DC, that, that was a period where I was still practicing, but I was kind of not so much into it because there was just so much great stuff going on in the punk scene and the local scene. And I, I, I kind of felt like a, somebody who, you know, I was like a closeted musician. Like I had to go home and practice in secret because I just wanted to sort of keep enjoying that and doing that. But at the same time, I wanted to be part of the, the punk scene. So there, you know, there was some, I think, tension in my life between those two things. I, I think it wasn't really until Unsolved and, you know, some of the later karate records that I really understood how those two things can kind of peacefully coexist in my music. And, you know, I think this is what I was sort of saying about I mean, Mark Ribeau, we were talking about a great example of, of just, you know, something that has both of those. Um, I mean, what an amazing ear that he has. And, and he's just a um, very sensitive musician. And you can hear, you know, a vast, you know, musical knowledge in his playing. But he's also incredibly raw and incredibly um, punk. You know, I know that's an easy, yeah. lazy term. But, you know, to, to me, it's very... Um, you know, you can hear that in his music. It's very heartfelt and, and it comes, yeah. there's also libido and heart in it. And, and Exactly. There's a lot of heart. You know, it, it's rare to find both because just in a lazy way too, I, I used to always in my head classify musicians as right-brained or left-brained. And, you know, you got on one side the Stooges and the other like Steely Dan or something, both great, but two you know, hot and cold kind of, kind of thing. But to be able to do both is, you know, to my mind, the goal. Yeah. To have the vocabulary I mean, and the, and the inspiration. Yeah. I, I think the musicianship needs to serve the music that you're making. Um, and in my career that it took me forever to, to learn that. I mean, that, that it took me forever to really understand that, you know, that you, you should, the, the song should come first or the music should come first and the musicianship should be just a, a way to, um, mm -hmm. to support that. But, you know, on the other hand, the musicianship is also a way to find the song, you know, because you're, you're forcing yourself or training yourself to do things that don't come naturally. And, you know, so, so I think that it's a complicated relationship and I, I certainly don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I mean, it's very easy to do one or the other. It's, I think much more difficult to do both. Yeah. Also goes, to my my uh impressions of what i think or feel when i hear uh, karate's music especially from the mid period on to the end was there's this cerebral element but there's also a vulnerability that kind of dances together and it's by turns uh can feel guarded but also exposed and yeah just uh it's interesting you, you i feel like you guys had that kind of duality and sometimes more successfully within the song you know one song versus different songs than others but it was kind of interesting because it didn't sound strictly just head music because 
especially your vocals and some of your lyrics too could be uh you know sometimes self-conscious but sometimes really self-revealing and you know i don't know that just came to mind when we were talking about yeah uh, thanks that's that's John. a really um I, I like the description a lot i mean i think it's really true um and I, I can you know this this idea of the tug of war between like a you know sort of something that's heartfelt heartfelt and vulnerable and then also guarded um and and sort of heady um i, I think all my music sounds cerebral to one extent or another not all but mo most most of it i've never been able to you know sound like an easygoing free-flowing you know I, I, it always sounds like i have some kind of project or something complicated that needs to unfold um in the moment or something <laughs> i've never been good at I, I really cherish musicians that sound like it's coming really easy and that that um you know i, I think that that's great but um you know that's another thing is i think figuring out who you are musically is important i mean there are so many different kinds of musicians and oh, yeah. you know as you know in my these days, I, I really think about that a lot. I think that I have been able to do one little niche thing that I, I found and that I'm, that I'm, you know, keep, keep trying to do, but, um, there are other, you know, musicians who are able to just, you know, like here in Chicago, I go and see a lot of, um, I, I teach a class on the AACM and I go and see, uh, from time to time, uh, concerts, these musicians that are part of the ACM and, and, you know, the, the way that they c command the crowd and just, you know, get everybody up and dancing mm -hmm. and their vision of what uh, music is supposed to be and supposed to do, it's, re you know, really supposed to do something, um, is just really inspiring. Um, it's something that I could never, uh, do, or even I think be a part of, um, that, that kind of spontaneous joy, um, that's in those performances, uh, just because of the type of person I am. But I think that for them, and for the audience, it's fantastic. Uh, we, we went to see the Great Black Music Ensemble a couple of years ago. My wife um, makes fun of me because uh, at the, their encore, they do this 20 minute long, this incredible you know song with like 18 musicians. And they get the whole crowd dancing and Ernest Dawkins came out into the audience and of all everybody there, he chose me and grabbed my hand and <laughs> started trying to get me to dance. And I, I shriveled away, you know, I was so scared, like I was so, and, and I gave, I sort of sacrificed my wife instead and made a fool of myself. Um, and that's the kind of person I am. I'm really, I'm scared. I'm, I'm not very extroverted. I'm not like, a, you know, mm -hmm. dancing center of attention kind of musician, but, you know, to see that and, and, and understand um, how uh, much joy that they bring to their fans um, and the people that follow them is just, you know, I'm happy to be in a world that that takes place, you know, or be in a city that that takes place.
Thanks, Jeff. It was great talking to you, Mr. Farina, and you, Mr. Kaplan. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to hear the full interview, uh, come join us on the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com, and on an Extras Club. Check out the whole interview. And uh, like I said, I'm going to digitize this karate live show from 97 and put it out there. That's awesome. Yeah. Now's the time where I don't know if it'll go on our and on in ever changing yeah well oh, okay sure well of course we're going to sure. do that how could cool. we not do that we have plenty of non-discord stuff on there we can so we are going to post them that's cool we I'm are going to do it yeah so this is where i say again so yeah so thank you for listening uh if you enjoy what we do please subscribe to the podcast please rate it please give it a review again thanks again to uh pocket 
for writing that nice two-word review. No, I genuinely appreciate it. And um, we curate a playlist on Spotify and on end the ever-evolving Discord mixtape. Although once in a while with episodes like this, we go off the rails and do something crazy and put a non-Discord thing on there. Right now, we are up to uh, 113 songs, four hours and 50 minutes of music. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of music. I wonder where this will end up. We're going to push it into five hours. I, I think we might. I yeah. think we might. I don't know. It's, it'll be close. It'll be close. So um, you picked last time. Uh, we did the Soul Side episode, and, and you had the first choice. You picked Love Supreme. First, if you recall that. So this is my pick. No secret. Uh, song number three, Diazepam. Uh, great song filled with everything that I really came to enjoy about this band. Very harmonically rich. Some of that jazz influence, lots of different, very cool parts. Um, and also, you know, a verse that is just very straightforward and, and hooky. And um, it's everything I enjoy. I enjoy. I enjoy all three minutes and 23 seconds of the song very much. So uh, what is uh, that's going on in the playlist? What's uh, throw it over to you? What's your favorite one on this one? I could have chose two or three things on here, but I'm just going to make it easy and go with something. I, I guess anything would have been a different, different uh, feel than yours. Cause that kind of sticks out diazepam, but uh, which is a great song. I'm going to go with the song before it, the same stars. It was the first song that drew me in. I feel like, cause it takes you on a journey and, so many different uh, moods and uh, musical spaces in the song, but in the chorus always kind of hooks me in as well. So, yeah, well, I'm really glad you picked that song. That's a, that's a good one. It, it's, it's filled with, uh, again, it's one of those songs that definitely takes its time, Yeah, uh, yeah. but is so rich with, you know, I mean, that really shows off the jazz chops that song. Oh, definitely. So, but at the same, you know, having said that, I still like, the vocal melody stays in my head as well. It's not just a jammed out musical song. Yeah. And it's got that great single note staccato guitar solo at the end that oh, that's uh, right. I love so yeah, much, yeah. you know, and it does. So, yeah. And the uh, one thing lyrically we didn't mention, uh, I, I just love the idea of it's, it's a common notion, but just the uh, title that, you know, we're under the same stars, you know, Mm -hmm. whether during this one part of our life or, you know, you and somebody that you're distant from, the stars are still the same above you. Yeah. Even though scientifically they might not be, but still. <laughs> mm. Well, in the universe, you know, what, what does it even mean to be above something else anyway? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. I know there's stars below us too. That's, uh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. We we are in essence, uh, Made you know, stars. if you're Neil deGrasse Tyson, he would tell you, you know, you are, you are, you are the stars. You are uh, mm. made of the same things in the same materials as the stars. So we're all connected in some sort of, you know, atomic way. So, mm. so okay, enough of that. Uh, so <laughs> this is where I ask you the question. I think next week we will get back on the Discord path. Yep. Uh, so what do we got coming up next week? Next week, we are back with a bang for the final ignition. Record. Well, the final new ignition. It's not the last ignition episode. No, period. yeah, yeah. 
the final <laughs> the final installment of of their final uh yes the final <laughs> wow oh god he's tongue not even late it's not it's even the last late. ignition record it, there's it's a collection later record. on down the road yeah. okay that's that's what's going on that's what's going on yes well i don't i don't even trust you to say the name of the album after <laughs> it's an easy one the horrifying mis- mis- horrifying mystique mystical mystical <laughs> the horrifying mystical of ignition um, yeah ignition there you go we were a little bit lukewarm i think on machination mm-hmm. yeah um i mean it was, it was hit and miss for me it wasn't overall lukewarm it was just kind of uneven yeah so it was we were kind of lukewarm on machination <laughs> um i'm not going to be lukewarm on orifying mystical so that's a spoiler alert cool. so uh i look yeah, forward to uh to talking about that and uh getting some more ignition under our belt yeah me too so yeah. I'll, we'll we'll see you next week jeff and uh, in the meantime gee Strange!